0: His name is R.P. McMurphy. He's 38 years old. He's being confined to the state mental hospital. They say he's crazy. Jack Nicholson is R.P. McMurphy in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest.
1: One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest was released in 1975 as an overnight classic. Telling the story of convicted felon R.P. McMurphy in his time in an Oregon Mental Institute, it was a critical darling, award smash, and now key touchstone in the careers of Jack Nicholson and director Milos Forman. My name's John, and the nuts with guts with me are Matt, Uh, Juicy Fruit. And Westy.
2: Jump up there and stuff it in the basket, CHIEF! It's
1: 1963, and all the right movies are on the Disturbed Ward. I know what you're thinking. Why don't you shut your goddamn mouth and play some music? Hello and welcome to All The Right Movies. The Thieves Brigade, the Mental Defective League, and a podcast on classic Ooh. and hit films.
2: Yep, that's everything. Yep,
1: that we are. <laughs> Today's episode, we've got a real classic to get into, don't oh, we? Yeah.
2: Oh, yeah. We have the definition of classic, yeah. I think.
1: We're with Milosh Foreman for the first time and Jack Nicholson, not for the first time, as we talk 1975's legendary One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Yeah. Oh, yes. Sounds great. Before we get the strayjackets out, though, We're talking about Patreon once again. If you like what we do on this, our classic podcast, and you're listening to it, so surely you do, Mm. if you'd like us to carry on doing it, you can help support that by becoming an All The Right Movies patron. Patrons get access to our bonus podcast episode called Double Feature and access to our whole archive of bonus episodes and classic episodes like this one. The archive's huge now, and we have a load of other classics in there. I said it's not our first time with Jan Nicholson, and The Shining is there. Mm-hmm. Yep, as is The Departed, yes, and is. many, many, many more episodes. Mm-hmm. Many more. They're like your very own electroconvulsive therapy.
2: Very much so, yeah. will have you paying out in silver dollars, yeah. hopefully. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so to find out more and sign up, please visit patreon.com forward slash all the right movies.
2: Yes, please do, guys. Yeah. Just have a look, see what you think. Yeah.
1: For now, though, back to Oregon. Mm. One flew over the cookie was nest, so why do you suggest this one, Westy?
2: Well, I mean, it has to be spoken about, doesn't it? I mean, a very, very powerful film, very thought-provoking film, a very necessary film, and unfortunately still a very relevant film, even today. Yeah. I think it sings true even now, so I think it's a, a good time to bring this one up and talk about it and try not to be too serious about it. I mean, it's a very funny film.
1: Hilarious. <laughs> of course,
2: but all of that it's trying to address and all that it's trying to say. I mean, I came to this one fairly late. I mean, I was mid 20s and it was all the you know wow. five easy pieces mm. easy rider cuckoo's nest got to get the jack nicholson kind of that trilogy in there yeah. and i was impressed with all three of them but this one especially stayed with us for a very very long time it's not one i can watch or rewatch regularly but every time i do it moves us to you know think differently about things and it really is one of them incredibly powerful films so what i will say if you haven't seen the film stop what you're doing yeah. take the dog home Take your headphones off, whatever you're doing, just go and watch this film and then come back to us. It is so worth it. It is so powerful. It is so brilliant. And I'm very excited to talk about it.
1: Yeah, when I first started getting into film was when I was like a teenager. I think this was one of the first classic films I watched. Right. Mm -hmm. And I remember being quite impressed with myself that I liked it at the time. (laughs) Sat through it all. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think it might have been the first Jack Nicholson film I ever saw. Wow. Before Batman? Yeah, where he wasn't like a psychopath clown, oh, obviously. Right. I was going to say, right? <laughs> yeah. I was actually way more familiar with Louise Fletcher. As she famously plays the Bajoran religious leader Kai Win in Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Of
2: course, it does. Deep Space Nine. Yeah. Famous. Yes, I did. Yeah. Now you
1: mention it. Yeah. But yeah, I did like the film a lot. And Nicholson, Miloš Foreman for the first time. A film with a huge reputation in American cinema. Lots of laughs. Mm-hmm. And there are some great behind the scenes stories as well. Yeah. All of yeah. that to come. So yeah, mm-hmm. I think this should be fun. Definitely. Yeah. And Matt, what about mm-hmm. yourself and OF4TCN?
2: <laughs> Four, one, those are
1: the white letters don't worry okay right we're not <laughs> yeah. doing more funny the right
3: okay I was a bit
2: confused yeah.
0: there
3: losing his mind already yeah. isn't he <laughs> it's a key film this one for me well at least because it was the first film I ever lent Wistie on videotape back in the day. That's right. <laughs> you got it back yet? No, no, you still got it. <laughs> but also, like you, John, when I was growing up getting in films, reading books, magazine articles, you know, what are the greatest films of all time? This one was always mentioned, so I was mm. always really keen to see it. And when I did, it just felt like my eyes had been opened, like i got it straight away. And it's really cinematic. It's not one of those classics where you feel you have to study it as you watch it, and it's a bit like reading a chapter in a textbook as you go along and explain, oh, this is why it's great. You live with this film as you watch it and you feel it. And it's always, always stayed with me right since that. First few months, yeah, big performances, big themes to get into, and a big fish on that Doctor's photo. Yeah, didn't weigh the chain, did you, Doc? <laughs> 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 so One Flew Over the cookie with
1: Nest was produced by Fantasy Films, distributed by United Artists, and released on November the 19th, 1975. Filmed in Salem, Oregon and on the North Oregon coast It was directed by Milos Forman Adapted by Lawrence Hauben and Bo Goldman From Ken Kesey's novel of the same name And it stars Jack Nicholson as R.P. McMurphy Louise Fletcher as Nurse Ratched And a host of other names as various inmates at the institution mm-hmm. yeah. We'll get to them as well Oh yeah, of course Let's do it then, should we? Yes Let's go Let's fly Okay, here we go We're getting on the bus to talk the opening act of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest Starts where it stays for most of its runtime, inside the State Mental Hospital. The world is explored from the word go, and we're getting into some key scenes that do that too. The baseball and basketball sports days are coming, but before that, we're talking some character introductions. Mm. Yes, we are. So we begin in autumn 1963. Convicted of statutory rape, Randall Patrick McMurphy is declared insane and committed to an institution. In the opening to the film, we meet Matt Murphy, our protagonist, as well as the rest of the inmates, our supporting characters, and Nurse Ratchard, our villain. Mm-hmm. Matt, the goddamn marvel of modern science that you are, how was the opening for you?
3: <laughs> if I had a silver dollar for every time I've been called that, John. Can't tell you.
0: (laughs)
2: You'd have one silver dollar. (laughs) (laughs) But I'd be very proud of that silver dollar.
3: (laughs) I think it starts wonderfully. And I'm going to start with McMurphy going to see Dr. Spivy and the little chat they have in his office, because I think it's a wonderful setup for the character and with what's going to come. McMurphy straight away laying on the charm here, isn't he? You know, what a pleasure it is to meet you. It's like he's in there for a job interview, you know, (laughs) doing anything but talk about why he's actually there, you know, more interested in the photo of the fish than anything else. But it tells you what this existence is going to be like for McMurphy because this whole charm offensive just washes over Spivvy. He he doesn't care one little bit. Like, (laughs) I absolutely love that bit when McMurphy thumps the desk like he's squashing a bug and Spivvy just gives him this look like, right, okay, I'll ignore that and just <laughs> yeah. carry on. Really funny look. Yeah, not his first rodeo, is it? Oh, not by any chance. And it's a really telling insight into McMurphy's character because as soon as they get into the reason he's there, it's just excuses. Oh, well, I guess I fight and I fuck too much. Comparing himself to Rocky Marciano, who's had a few fights.
0: <laughs> yeah.
3: And then when he starts trying to excuse this crime, the reason he, he's there, oh, she said she was 18, and he yeah. starts talking about the Red Beaver. Like, the expression on Spivvy's face. It's awful. Awful. Like, it doesn't change, but you can tell what he's thinking. But still, yeah. for McMurphy, it's all a game. That big grin at the end, you know, I think we ought to get to the bottom of our P McMurphy. He thinks it's all just a big laugh, and he's going to breeze through this whole thing. Yeah.
1: Yeah, there's a couple of things I take from this scene. Firstly, it becomes apparent very quickly. We're in another time. It gets mentioned that Matt Murphy was convicted of statutory rape, like you said, Matt. A horrendous yeah. thing. Mm-hmm. But it comes across fairly clear to me that the film thinks it isn't that big a deal. Yeah. Right. I think it might even want us to feel a bit sorry for Matt Murphy. Mm. I know that in the original book, the girl in question was only about nine, but statutory Jesus. rape is still very bad. Yeah. That's like yeah. 1975 for you, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Also, though, Dr. Spiffy was played by Dr. Dean R. Brooks, a real doctor mm-hmm. and physician. Mm-hmm. And Foreman used that to his advantage because Brooks said that when they shot this scene, Foreman gave him and John Nicholson six points to cover and said, I don't care how you get there, just cover those six points. Oh, wow. Nice. Which is like Kirby Enthusiasm. I think that's how they film as well. <laughs> yeah, <So, laughs> yeah Should have got yeah. Larry David in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And just watching that scene, I think it's pretty clear. The scene's mostly improvised. Yeah. Like, when Matt Murphy's looking in the fishing photo and he's mm. like, you didn't weigh the chain, did you dark? Yeah. Yeah. And when he goes, do I look like that kind of guy to you dark and sticks mm. his tongue out? Yeah. Blatant ad libs by Nicholson, I think, yeah. Yeah. but good opening sets mm. up the Mac as I'm going to call him. Okay. And also the spontaneous feel of the dialogue that carries on mm. and establishes
2: the kind of laid back pacing
1: that Foreman brings
2: to the film. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, you can totally tell he's a real Doctor. I think it really adds to it, adds to the weight of it. I think every time he's on screen, you can tell he's just got this bravado about him, I guess, Mm. this real knowledge that kind of shines through. And I think it's really necessary to have that, especially with the ad lib of Nicholson. He kind of keeps him grounded, which is really good. But the bit that gets me in the opening of the film is the first group session where everybody's together
0: Mm, yeah,
2: and you start to understand every character and the way that this is framed. And I think it's just so wonderful to watch, but at the same time, it's so painful. I mean... Harden, who's played by William Redfield, is wonderful here. Everyone's yeah, wonderful great. here. I mean, Cheswick's wonderful here. Charlie Cheswick. When he's talking about his wife and the responsibilities that he's got and how he's just breaking down over it and nobody's offering him any support whatsoever. Mm. Nobody wants to talk first. Nobody wants to get involved. And I think Max's looking at the group and he's going, I can have everybody here. Mm. (laughs) I can manipulate everybody, he's laughing, he's looking Mm. around, he's thinking this is going to be so easy. And you know that little uh, little like he just reacts to that, (laughs) he just does that, he's (laughs) laughing and you just tell her, is this actually scripted or is the camera just on these guys Mm. just doing what they do best? And I think it's just wonderful. And when Cheswick just offers it, I just want to help. And he's like, yeah. just shut up. I said, I just want to help. And I, I break please, my fucking heart. Please, like, yeah, please, <laughs> no, no. And it's just, oh, it's so heartbreaking when he's just quiet. And then it's just when Banchini comes in and just like, I'm tired. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm
0: tired. <laughs>
1: Always tired him, isn't he? <laughs>
2: yeah, it's amazing. But it's when there's like, when Ratchet talks to Harden and just like, so why do you suspect that? and there's just that real slow push. I mean, you mm. Foreman does this a lot mm-hmm. and there's that slow push on ratchet and you just know she means business. And that's the introduction to that character. that's so, so good. And a way it just ends on her, just staring at McMurphy, mm-hmm. just looking at him, sizing him up, mm-hmm. knowing what's going to happen. I think it's a wonderful introduction to the whole group and a wonderful introduction to the actual place where we're going to be spending all of this time. And it is painful to watch, but at the same time, really funny, really pleasurable and just an excellent, excellent setup.
1: Yeah, I agree. It is our introduction to the inmates and also the group therapy sessions, which are a recurring beat of the movie, and they're yeah. always engaging. Yeah. There's a few sessions in the film, but I like how each one tends to evolve mostly around one or two of the patients. Mm, yeah. And this one, like you said, Westy, is definitely Harding's moment. Yeah. I'm talking about farm. Oh. I'm talking about content. <laughs> I'm talking about God, <laughs> the devil, hell. And... <laughs> Do you get that? Finally! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For anyone listening, that is exactly what Matt was like when he first joined the
3: podcast. <laughs> yes, there was. I had to be edited down somewhat since then. Uh... Yeah, I wouldn't shut up. <laughs> I just want to help, man.
2: please.
1: <laughs> and this is also our first real inside the nurse, Ratchet, as she leads the session, the Ratch. She doesn't say a lot, but after it's all descended into chaos, the scene ends with, like you mentioned, Ratchet giving Matt Murphy that really cold stare. Mm-hmm. He gets yeah. a few of them. As the film goes
3: on. He does. He definitely does. Yeah, and just to go back to Harding, as was said, played by William Redfield, and he is really good in this. So if anyone's wondering Mm. why they never saw him in anything after, it's because he he died only the year after, 1976. He did, yeah. Um, Yeah. Really sad. He had leukemia, and he was actually diagnosed on set by Dana Brooks. Yeah,
1: good job he was there. So he was ill throughout filming, William Redfield. Not that it shows, I think he's really good. No, I don't think he shows it all. Yeah,
2: I think once you know, I think there's a few bits where you kind of he does look a little bit weaker than he should. Right, right. obviously he's still smoking through the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> ridiculous. But another of the
1: actors had some medical problems on the set too. Sidney Lassick, who plays Cheswick, the guy who yeah. wants cigarettes, right. he apparently got so heavily into the character that people on the set became concerned. In filming the final scene where the chief euthanizes McMurphy, Cheswick's lying in bed nearby, but Lasky became so overwhelmed by the whole scene that he had to be taken off the set. Wow. Yeah, he had a breakdown, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah. And the doctor said to Foreman, if things get out of control, don't worry, we've got the right medication. (laughs) Like what? The electroshock stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable.
2: Yeah. You can see it from the even from that, you know, the scene that I'm talking about when she just mentioned Mr. Cheswick and he's like, mm. me? Yeah. Mm. It's yeah. no, it's, so, it's a really powerful performance. Yeah. That guy, it yeah. Yeah, it's huge. It sticks in really my good. head that yeah. all the way through. Yeah. We talked about Nicholson improvising the scene in Spivvy's office there earlier on and he did some ad-libbing before that. The moment when we're seeing McMurphy being brought into the hospital by the guards, the script said that McMurphy had to kiss the prison guard Nicholson did that, but then Foreman told him on the next take to kiss the other guard, so he was surprised. And you can definitely see
0: that. Oh, in yeah, hilarious. Definitely can, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, another moment that definitely seems improvised to me is when Matt Murphy's refusing to take his pills from Nurse Pillbo, mm-hmm. and yeah. Harding's standing there right next to him, grinning in yeah. his face. And yeah. Matt Murphy yeah. like, reacts to it yeah. and calls him Hard On, worst yeah. nickname ever. <laughs> 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 but that's surely improvised between those two at the
2: time, I think. Yeah, yeah, brilliant! How she's called Pillbo and hands out all the pills. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Pillbo Baggins. <laughs> she is quite small,
1: so <laughs> she is tiny. So that's the opening, and our main characters. And it seems the lunatics might be running the asylum. Mm. Yep. From there, we spend more time with the inmate as we get into the day-to-day of life in the institute. Mm-hmm. Lots of sports, isn't there? Yeah.
2: Big fan of sports, me.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Only in films like this, though, not real sports. <laughs>
1: in these scenes we see the friction between Matt Murphy and Rajid escalate, a fake baseball game and a very real basketball game. Yeah. Mm. Take us out to the ball game, is Westy.
2: Oh, this scene where Mark is trying to get that baseball game on, and <laughs> Nurse Ratchet is not letting him do it. It's 10 to 9. It's 9 to 9. The session's <laughs> over. Fuck. Yeah. And he's just going around and he's just trying to get everybody convinced. And when he's like, oh, say, can you see the ball game? Come on, they dance around uh, yeah. with people come on chief and the chief put his hand up the chief put yeah. his hand up and yeah. like, yes great and he just sits down with such a temper when he sits in that seat he's like, <laughs>
3: oh,
0: yeah, yeah. Oh. like Cameron. a
2: proper kid with a little paddy. it's absolutely <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> amazing and just the way it's so heartwarming this scene i absolutely love it like i'm watch it over and over again what a performance from nicholson this is if this mm-hmm. was just like the central performance of the whole film I think he still would have got the Oscar for it. It's absolutely Mm. incredible just the way that he does it, the way he sets it up. And he's like, Kofex kicks. He delivers. Yeah. And they take them into a martini, and everyone else just comes around the corner and they're looking at the TV and they're like, What the f- yeah. fuck? What the fuck's he doing? Is he fucking crazy? And they're just like getting into it, and he's like, It's out like a fucking firecracker. And it's going, It's gone. And everyone's like, Yeah, has it? What are you talking about? Jimmy's <laughs> the only one who can see this, but it's when he's like, Get me a fucking wiener before I die.
0: I love that <laughs> bit. I love that bit. Incredible
2: line. It's the, the most beautiful act of like peaceful rebellion I've seen in film. It's Mm. so wonderful. It's got to be up there in like top three scenes of that nature where it's just, we're going to do what we want and we're going to absolutely steal it. It's just wonderful how Ratchet doesn't have control. McMurphy has control and he has control just by imagining this place and taking them somewhere else just through pure imagination. I think it's absolutely magic.
1: Yeah, the whole sequence is 10 minutes of Jack Nicholson being unbelievably charismatic. Ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> I don't even know the rules of baseball, but I understand that game. It's <laughs> uh, yeah. <That's> exciting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: What stands out to me is just the vindictiveness of Ratchet. In that first mm. vote, she says to Matt Murphy, get a majority and we can watch the game, knowing fine well that even yeah. if everyone in the group votes yes, it's still not enough, Yeah, which is exactly. outrageous. Yeah. 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 And then when Murphy minds the match, that to me is Nicholson at his best. Huge personality, charisma, the things he does as well as anyone. But also, mm-hmm. looking out through today's lens, tiny little telly. Not seeing anything on that. <laughs> yeah, it's a minuscule, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's like five inches.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Still sees reflection in it, though. That's important. <laughs> yeah.
1: But yeah, one of the most memorable moments in the film for me. And oh, easily. All mm-hmm. about Nicholson as well. Mm-hmm.
2: So the radio broadcast we hear of the baseball game was a real match. It was game two of the 1963 World Series, the LA Dodgers versus the New York Yankees. That's basically the only reference the film gives to what year it's set in, which is uh, brilliant. Very nice. I
1: thought you were going to say that's the only baseball reference you'll ever hear from me. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Definitely is <laughs> until we
2: talk about Major League, but that's
1: another thing. Yeah, and the commentator as well on that clip might be known to our American listeners. He's a Hall of Fame baseball announcer called Ernie Harwell. Okay, okay. Our equivalent, I guess, would be like John Morton or someone. <laughs> Big sheepskin coat. <cool.
3: laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to go from uh, the baseball to the basketball game. Because nice when mac tries to get the patients to play basketball it's so good it's so important to the film because for one thing it's funny and i do think the film lulls you into a false sense of insecurity at this point like it's going to be this kind of gentle heartwarming tale of this guy inspiring these patients yeah and there's a lot of really good physical comedy here you know mcmurphy on top of banchini waggling his ass about to get in a move. <laughs> that's brilliant that's really funny And it's interesting because at first glance, you think, oh, he's helping them. They're getting some exercise. They're getting the first lesson in how to think for themselves, what they're going to do with the ball, but also lessons about teamwork. It's surely better than just sitting in the same semicircle in therapy day after day after day. But the interesting thing for me is Mac is still doing it for selfish reasons. You Mm -hmm. know, he's bored. He wants something to do. And if he's going to have to move these guys around to do it, then that's what he's going to do. And it's also the root of his relationship with the chief. You know, he doesn't give up on him just because he gets no response. He persists yeah. even when Washington tells him, Look, you're not getting through to him. Yeah. And I think in retrospect, you can probably see Chief here trying to work out McMurphy for himself as well. You know, is this guy a loon? Is he for real? Is he actually smart? And I love how keeps cutting back to Ratchet, just observing in that building. Yeah, like it's from the, the opposite side from the window that push in again on Ratchet. that push yeah. in again yeah. really yeah. kubrick really kubrick watching what's going on yeah you know is this guy going to be a problem what am i up against here probably thinking a lot of the same things chief is actually you know what what is up with this guy is he real or fakes yeah i really like this thing yeah yeah
1: the basketball match it's the funniest scene in the film
0: <laughs> one of the funniest <laughs> really- scenes in the
1: film for me yeah it's Matt Murphy's exasperation at playing with the inmates. Nicholson is so funny. When he passes to Martini, and Martini just yeah. throws the ball straight out of play, Matt Murphy's like, you threw the ball into the goddamn fence. There's nobody there. We're playing ball. <laughs> but I love the setup scene to this as well, where we see Matt Murphy teaching the chief and Banchini how to play basketball. Yeah. Yeah. One of the most yeah, yeah. important beats of the film, Matt Murphy teaching the patients and kind of enriching mm-hmm. them. And again, it's funny. Again, Nicholson is so charismatic where he's like, yeah. I got the moves. Hit me, chief. Yeah. <laughs> Hit <Yeah>. me, baby. <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. <laughs> but then the humour undermined straight away when we get that cut to that shot of Ratchet at the window yeah. surveying yeah, what's yeah, going yeah. on. If ever there was a shot in a movie that makes you go, that's the villain then. It's that one,
2: yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that surveillance kind of look. The actual yeah, yeah. match, though, how happy is Chief when he's just running up and down oh, the court? He's delighted. Oh my god! <laughs> it just—I just want to sob when I'm watching it. He's just so fucking happy, man. I love it.
3: Yeah, and then in the scene you have Joseph ellick and he's the actor who plays Banchini. And yeah. he said Nicholson actually improvised the whole thing about climbing onto his shoulders. And then Alec, <laughs> in return, he improvised the walking away and coming back, which is really funny. That though, is really man. funny. He's like, over there!
2: And he's like, yeah. shuffling
0: around, yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah, apparently Nicholson said to Joseph Alec, if I fall, they'll close the picture down for a week. And Alec said, if I fall, they'll close it down for two weeks.
0: <laughs> <laughs> nice. I wouldn't hold your breath on that, oh, be honest, no. Joseph. No. Doesn't no. even say anything. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and that is the beginning of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. An intense setting, intense characters, and the setup of the relationship between the Mac and the Ratch—pretty intense. Pretty Even intense, but yet. let's
2: get more intense. Why not?
3: Yeah.
1: The director.
2: The director of One Flew
1: Over the Cuckoo's Nest was Czech-born filmmaker Miloš Forman. He directed mm-hmm. five films before Cookie was Nest, Czech Productions, Black Peter Audition, Loves of a Blonde and The Fireman's Ball, and the 1971 American Comedy Taking Off. Yeah. Mm. Not exactly a household name at the time then, Matt. No. Nope. How did Milos Foreman do as director
3: of OF4 TCN? Is that definitely right? Still the right that is. It's still <laughs> right. Okay. Right. <laughs> I mean, this is proper grown-up direction, isn't it? You know, this is the work of someone who's patient. And not afraid of being subtle because he knows that's what the story needs. And I think a lesser director or someone who didn't get the story, I think they might try to like impose their personality on the film too much, but to its detriment. So the therapy scenes, you know, someone might try to do a big like tracking shot around the circle. Because the mm. thing the camera has yeah. to move more. Yeah. Or when the patients are speaking, they will go from one to another in a wanna. But Foreman doesn't bring any of that because he knows it's not right. So what he does is very simple. It's very mid-shot, mid-shot, group shot, two-shot. Even when he goes for close-up, it, it's not bam. He doesn't punch in like Leone does in his films. <laughs> well, thankfully. <laughs> <like that>. imagine, <laughs> I'm <laughs> 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 Scariest thing ever. It's, it's all very careful and considered. And because that, he brings, I think, a huge amount of realism to this, and he grounds it. And, you know, I'm not going as far as saying it's like a docudrama. It doesn't have that kind of element to it, but it all feels very truthful in terms of the emotion, in terms of the narrative. So when you do get the big moments, like McMurphy narrating the baseball game, or when he kicks off later at everyone for being voluntary, that don't feel too big, that don't feel like Hollywood moments, that feel like they've grown naturally out of the character and out of the Mm -hmm. narrative. And I think Mm -hmm. in a lesser film, those moments would just not fit in, or they'd be too OTT. And I don't think this film ever feels like a Hollywood film. And I think that's because of the realism that Foreman brings to it.
1: Yeah, agreed. One of the most surprising things is maybe how little experience Milos Forman had in Hollywood, yeah. just one film. Like I mentioned, he did have four Czech films under his belt. And maybe it isn't so much of a surprise, because I think there's a definite European film influence in with Nest.
2: Yeah, definitely.
1: First off, in its edge, Forman doesn't shy away from mm. taking us to dark places. The first time that Murphy goes through the electroconvulsive therapy and we see it, that mm-hmm, yeah. is brutal. I always yeah. imagine how that might feel. Yeah. I mean, Nicholson mm. delivers it brilliantly, but it's Foreman's vision for it as well. Yeah. Also, there's a very laid-back, naturalistic pacing that reminds me of European films, like during the party at the end, where Billy hooks up mm. with Candy. They both go off into the room, and then the camera just kind of sits on Matt Murphy, doing nothing for about yeah. 30 yeah. seconds. Yeah. Foreman's not intimidated by just having one image fill the screen for a time. Mm. He would let yeah. the cameras roll as well when they weren't shooting, but not tell the actors, so he could capture real emotions. Mm -hmm. And the shot when Matt Murphy comes back from shock therapy and Ratchet gives him like an icy glare.
2: Mm.
1: That apparently was actually Louise Fletcher reacting to something that Foreman had said to her that she didn't like.
2: Yeah, that's right. Oh, wow.
1: So don't mess with Louise Fletcher. (laughs) (laughs) Not at all. (laughs) Absolutely not. And also Foreman himself said that as somebody born in Czechoslovakia in like 1932, he saw the whole idea of being locked in a mental hospital as an allegory for the Communist Party that he worked under as a young man. Yeah, right. The Communist Party was my big nurse, he said. And I think when you know that, you can see it because the film definitely Mm. explores the idea of like identity and that being stripped away from people. So excellent direction. I like how you can see Mm. Foreman's identity as a European and specifically a Czechoslovakian all through the film. I would say it's Noam Aedes, Foreman's other classic for me. (laughs) What is? What is? (laughs) I love that one, yeah. Nothing, (laughs) yeah. yeah. Nothing.
3: (laughs) (laughs) It's a great film, yeah.
2: Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with what you guys have said, especially what you've said, John, with that European influence, it's very, very evident and I love the fact that he gives the identity to the group as opposed to the individuals We don't really have much backstory, we don't quite know what's wrong with half of the people apart from Mm Harden but we get his backstory Mm -hmm. with his wife and he's obviously, you know, a repressed homosexual and he has no idea (laughs) that he is and it's just, you know, he's he's struggling with that and I suppose in the 70s, that's something that's very, very difficult to struggle, you know, to come to terms with because Mm -hmm. it's not something that was welcomed, so you know, it, it is something that is going to put himself in an institution for because he just feels confused why doesn't he love his wife you know yeah, yeah. why why am i not normal you know inverted commas so i yeah. think that's that's the only kind of backstory that we we'll get to that outing harding yeah, well, how are
0: we, man? <laughs> That's not a big push, is it? It's hardly like
2: Damon in The department, which I did as well.
0: <laughs> you know, I'm,
2: I'm full of them. It's just the way that, like Matt said, Matt touched on it. It's the way he frames this. in this because this came from a, a theatre production, it does feel like it has that kind of approach, especially the group shots. If you watch how the group shots are filmed, it is the full group. And then when somebody speaks, it is a mid-shot on that person. It's mm-hmm. a single. It's bang, this person, bang that person he very rarely goes to a two shot unless then both are interacting with each other or both Mm. interacting with the scene and i'd very much doubt he had what seven cameras so he's going to know what he's going to put and where he's going to put it he shows you everything like you said john he shows you up he opens the door and lets you in yeah and he's absolutely fearless the direction in this is honest it gives all the actors room to perform to find the characters and it's fearless absolutely brilliant
1: so, Ken Kesey's novel was published in 1962, and behind the scenes, there was a very famous Hollywood family played a major part in bringing Mumflu over the cuckoo's nest
2: to the screen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know the family, I mean. Well, there was a period in the 80s cinema where he got so horny, he ruined his life. over. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, if that doesn't give you a
2: clue. Yeah,
1: Douglas's So, Kirk Douglas loved the book and bought the film right when it was first released. He starred in the Broadway production of Cookie was Nest as McMurphy, but mm-hmm. struggled to get it bought by a studio. Douglas had actually met Milos Foreman in Prague in the 60s and told him right, he'd send him right. the book as he thought he'd be a good fit to direct. The okay. book never arrived, though, because it was presumably confiscated by the Czech government. Yeah. Foreman thought Douglas hadn't sent the book. Douglas thought Foreman had just ignored him and they were both furious for years. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I can easily imagine Kirk Douglas and Milos Foreman holding a lifelong grudge over a misunderstanding, oh, to be honest. Yeah. Just like, refusing
2: to be in <laughs> the same room for like five <laughs> yeah. years. I am Spartacus. No, I'm Spartacus. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, no, no, years later, Kirk Douglas was going to sell the rights for cookies because he just couldn't get a mate. But then Michael Douglas, his son, obviously said, well, let me run with it. And he got Saul Zanz to co-op use for $2 million. At that point, Hal Ashby, who before this had made Howland Maud, he was in the running to direct. But by coincidence, the writer that hired at this point, who was a guy called Lawrence Horbin, he recommended Milos Forman instead. And then when they met Forman, Forman actually went through the script line by line, describing what he'd do. Of course he did. And that's the reason Douglas hired him. Absolutely (laughs) amazing. Brilliant. Yeah. You can tell that. Nine hour meeting. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Didn't (laughs)
2: Foreman say he was just hired because he was in their price range?
1: (laughs) Really humble man. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Douglas said it was the fireman's ball that convinced him that Foreman was the guy because that film featured a load of characters in like an enclosed situation as well. Right. And Douglas also said that at the time, Foreman was living in the Chelsea Hotel in New York as a recluse. And he had a friend with him who would act as a go-between between between Foreman and a psychiatrist and relay information like a piggy in the middle. So it sounds like he was kind of living the film for real.
2: Yeah, (laughs) living the fucking dream. I'd love that. (laughs) 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 Foreman had the cast prepare for filming a lot. During casting, he auditioned actors by putting them in group therapy sessions and had them improvise. Apparently, part of the reason Sidney Lassick won the part of Cheswick was because he turned up wearing a rope as a belt. <laughs> which was probably normal, I think, for Sydney Lassie. Yeah. Sounds yeah. like a good look, to be fair. It sounds yeah. great, yeah. Jack Sparrow. <laughs>
1: <laughs> then before filming, Foreman screened the Titty Cut Follies to the cast, which was a documentary from the 60s about the inmates of Bridgewater State Hospital right. being declared criminally insane. And Foreman said that film had a fascination with faces that inspired him in Cuckoo's Nest. Right. Right. I mean, there's okay. some right faces in Cook- it was Nest, to be fair. <laughs> yeah. Right. I know. Right.
3: The hills do have eyes. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's not He is in Yeah. There. yeah. And I know that form, And he also wanted to shoot on location in a real hospital. And Douglas did try to arrange that, but he said that because the story depicts mental health treatment in a pretty poor light. Everyone he spoke to just turned him down. But then he spoke to Dr. Dino Brooks, who we've already talked about, yeah. and at the time, he was the director of the Oregon State Hospital, and he said, yeah, you can film here, as long as my patients can be in the film, because Brooks thought it would be like an extension of their therapy, and as we say, he placed Dr. Spivy, and oh. another doctor, Persona K. Patty, is in the film as Dr. Sanji as well. Right.
1: Yeah. So you can film here as long as my patients can be in the film, I can be in the film, and my mate can be in the film. <laughs> yeah. Outrageous.
2: That's not going to be a problem, is it? What extras do you want? Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, Douglas employed 85 patients on the film. They didn't right. know at the time, but many of them were criminally insane. And wow. One guy was wow. the biggest arsonist in Oregon. <laughs>
2: You're audience... going to say
1: asshole. <laughs> <laughs> And they put that guy in the art department and gave him the job of wiping down the 10K lamps with five gallons of (laughs) kerosene. I mean... (laughs) What could possibly go wrong?
2: What? (laughs) Amazing. That is literally the worst job ever for him. (laughs) An absolute circus. Just a charge of lighting cigarettes. (laughs) Foreman Dean Drooks identified one real patient for each of the cast members to shadow in the hospital just to get a feel for what their life was like. And he had Jack Nicholson and Louise Fletcher watch real electroshock therapy sessions. Some of the cast members slept on the ward and Foreman apparently lived there for a month before filming. (laughs) <laughs> so they all slept. You know where they where they drag Billy up, and there's that big corridor where Nurse Ratchet yeah. walks in, yeah. and all the cells yeah. on either side. Like all the actors right. slept in themselves. Wow, wow.
1: Former would have fit in like a glove. <laughs> so Disappeared yeah, yeah. in the background. <laughs> Just yeah. Still
2: thinking it's the Chelsea Hotel. <laughs>
1: <laughs> there was also an abandoned underground railway under Oregon State Hospital, and in those old tunnels, they kept the ashes of former hospital patients that had gone unclaimed after they died, which is sad. That's nice grim, yeah. But the cast went through those patients' belongings and took some things for the film so every cloud <laughs> <laughs> wasn't a total waste yeah. <laughs> so the record book that Ratchet carries around with her all the time Louise Fletcher took
3: that from the Underground Railway wow, wow. And also during filming, a crew member had left a second-story window open at the hospital, and an actual patient climbed through, but fell and injured himself. So the next day, the Statesman Journal newspaper in Oregon had the front-page headline, One Flew Out of the Cuckoo's Nest. Very good. Very clever. The yeah. pun down. Yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got to be across your puns if you're working in there, yeah, Of print. course. He nearly died, but at least he got a good pun out of it.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And the production designer was called Paul Silbert, and he described filming as a bedlam, like a 19th century madhouse. At yeah. one point, apparently, some of the real patients were pulled out of their wheelchairs and dragged across the floor, and Dean Brooks ran in shouting, this has all got to stop, this has got to stop. <laughs> but get me in there, though.
2: Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Don't cut my Just the right side. Milo, are, are, are you rolling on that? Yeah. <laughs> For his work on
1: One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Milos Forman won Best Director at the Oscars and the film mm-hmm. itself won Best Picture. Yeah. yeah, To say there was some competition that year is an understatement. Mm. The Best Picture nominees alongside Cuckoo's Nest were Barry Lyndon, Dog Day Afternoon, Nashville and Jaws. Wow. Yeah. Oof. Three out of four in bad. And Best Director nominees that year were Forman, Federico Fellini, Sidney Lumet, Robert Altman and Stanley Kubrick. Mm-hmm. Wow, yeah. When Spielberg's not getting nominated for Jaws, you know there's been some yeah. serious directing done that year. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's one of the big boys. They we weren't ready for it yet, I don't think. <laughs> no. It was Foreman who came out on top, though, and great work from him on One Flew Over the Cookie's Nest. Oh,
2: astonishing story. Unparalleled, never been matched, I don't think.
0: The cast.
1: Milos Foreman was largely unknown as a filmmaker in 1975, and that can be said about all but one of the cast, too. Yeah, yep. A big ensemble cast, and we're going to talk about several, including the inmates and Nurse Ratched, but we're starting with that big name. We are. Mm-hmm. So, Jack Nicholson plays Randall Patrick R.P. McMurphy. Sent to the mental institution after pleading insanity when convicted of statutory rape, McMurphy locks horns with Nurse Ratched, resulting in his lobotomization and mercy killing at the hands of the chief, but not before becoming a saviour and father figure to the hospital inmates. Let's hear it for Bull Goose Randall, Westie.
2: <laughs> Let's hear it. Why not?
1: <laughs> How's Matt Murphy? I'm John Nicholson.
2: How's Jack Nicholson in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest? I mean, that's not even a question, is it? It's just, <laughs> it's more like how good is Jack Nicholson in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest? That's it. And the range of him and what he brings to this is just absolutely ridiculous. It's yeah. so, so powerful. It is, he's just so engrossed in it. And you're so engrossed in it. I mean, we said at the top what he's in for statutory rape, Hmm, you're hmm. supposed to hate this guy immediately, but Hmm, you don't and he keeps going and he takes them out and he you know, takes them fishing and you're supposed to hit but you don't. He abuses women, mm. he's got prostitutes you're supposed to hate them and you don't. Who else could pull this off with that much charisma <laughs> and that much range apart from Jack Nicholson in 1975?
1: Maybe nobody. Yeah.
2: Nobody yeah. that I can think of could perform this well and he's got this real depth to him, a real emotional centre this real believable core. Mm. The range that he's got and he hits everything. It's like an opera singer just hitting the high notes and then hitting bass at the same time. you just know for a fact, he's just so watchable, so engaging. It's just, you know, it's up there with kind of Brando's kind of performance for me. Yeah. It's absolute yeah. masterclass. I cannot say any more about it than it's just absolutely flawless.
1: Yeah, I mean, I agree. He's one of the biggest Hollywood names ever, and yeah. he's not one of my favorite actors or anything, John Nicholson. But his brilliance is beyond question. Absolutely three-time Oscar winner, and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is the best he's ever been for me. Yeah, The film has a great setting in the hospital. There's a brilliant supporting set of characters as well, but yeah. I think it's a dynamic between McMurphy and Ratched that powers the film.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I saw an interview with Nicholson where he said he always tries to find an angle with his characters, like a unique way to approach it, and his angle with McMurphy was that he thinks he's irresistible to women, and that's his big flaw. Yeah, And we see that all yeah. through the film because yeah. McMurphy's charming he charms the bird of everyone's trees, the patients, the orderlies, the audience. But ratchet doesn't bat an eyelid. No. Nicholson no. said the cookie was nest is basically one long unsuccessful seduction between him and ratchet I mean, yeah. we've all been yeah. blown out, but this is ridiculous. <laughs> yeah,
2: <laughs> Yeah. I've never had to strangle <laughs> someone at the end of it. No.
1: <laughs> and that role, the charismatic, lovable scamp who's got light and shade to him, it's like it was written for Jack Nicholson.
3: Yeah, it is, yeah. yeah.
1: Maybe the definitive Nicholson performance, and for me, definitely mm. his best.
3: Yeah, I mean, just in general, 70s Jack Nicholson is where it's at for me, I think. Mm. what Once you get past The Shining, which I really love, but then into yeah. the 80s and 90s, I'll just lose interest a bit in him. And, you know, he's always entertaining, but... He gets a bit hammy. He gets a bit lazy. It's always Jack turning up with his sunglasses on <laughs> to do his Jack thing. Um, in the 2000s, he gets much more interested in stuff like about Schmidt. But yeah, this is his peak, I think. Mm. Just an absolute charisma volcano. Just lights yeah. up the screen every second. The camera loves him. The characters, apart from Ratchet love him. And he brings everything that's great about him as an actor. His energy is like unlike anyone else his magnetism, and that's so important because, as, as Westy says, we should hate McMurphy. Yeah, mm. He is abhorrent. And nothing he does in this film suggests he's a saint. Some of the things he does are really, really selfish. And, you know, we'll, we'll get into that. I think everything he does is selfish. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, yeah. sometimes he's right in what he says and not denying he does some good for these people, but he isn't there for this horrible reason. And, yeah, if it wasn't for how good Nicholson is, I don't know how much we would stick with him as a character. Well, Jack Nicholson wasn't the only
1: name linked with Matt Murphy. Depending on what you read, all sorts of names were considered. Steve mm. McQueen, James Caan, John Voight, Marlon Brando. I mean, Brando mm. would have been outrageous. It would have been ridiculous.
0: <laughs> Huge. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the patient would have been the regular guys next to Brando. Yeah, yeah.
2: Just rubbing his head, just talking about the end of the world. <laughs> yeah. Just in shadow all the time. Yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> And according to Burt Reynolds, Foreman offered him the part of Matt Murphy over breakfast, but it never went
3: anywhere. Right. right.
1: Huge tash in there for Matt Murphy. <laughs> <laughs> Big it would have been
3: funny though, Reynolds. <laughs> Hell, yeah. hilarious! yeah, yeah I do Yeah, and I know about when, as I said earlier, Hal Ashby was in talks to director, it was him that had first mentioned Nicholson for the role, which right. Michael Douglas once was mentioned, apparently he never forgot, informed it also liked the idea, but... Problem was Nicholson wasn't available for another six months, so they used that time to assemble the cast to complement him instead.
1: Yeah, well, that worked out pretty well, I think, didn't yeah. it? No, absolutely, yeah, yeah.
3: Everyone's brilliant, yeah.
1: One person that wasn't impressed, though, was the creator, Ken Kesey. He said that Nicholson was totally wrong for the part and that he thought a better fit was Gene Hackman.
2: Right. Can you see that? I can see where he's coming from, but I, I couldn't see it all. I mean, maybe for one scene, but to hold the whole film up all the way through, I don't think so.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean Hackman's brilliant and I love him but I can't quite get there with McMurphy with him. Hackman would have ripped that sink up, no problem. (laughs) (laughs) Easy.
2: During filming, Michael Douglas lived in a rented house next to Nicholson and said that Nicholson might have a reputation for not giving a shit and it all coming so easy to him, but that's not true. He said he would hear him rehearsing every single night and Foreman said he is the most prepared, considerate generous actor perfect I don't know this day if he's crazy or not I've, I still have no idea but it's like well that's the whole point isn't it yeah,
1: yeah. when Milosh Foreman's calling you crazy you might be a bit crazy <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
3: or just a very 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 good actor <laughs> yeah yeah thing is Foreman calls Nicholson perfect now but famously they didn't get on at all during filming well Foreman initially thought the watch should be chaos when McMurphy arrives, but Nicholson took the opposite approach, said, well, no, it should be calm, otherwise I'm going to have no effect on the other patients. Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Also on the first day of filming, Nicholson turned up sporting a huge bushy beard, as he thought it suited the character, (laughs) like mine. Matt turned up wearing a huge bushy beard the day as well. (laughs) Big bushy beard. (laughs) And Foreman told him to shave it off immediately. So they got off on the wrong foot straight away. Oh, dear. Yeah. Yeah.
2: That point there, though, about them arguing or discussing whether it should be mental or it should be calm when they go into the mm. place, surely that's in the script, right? Surely that's that's decided so. before they start filming, <laughs> yeah. surely. Like, really, come yeah. on.
1: <laughs> Not in this case.
2: What's it like in Me- there? I don't know. They're all fucking crazy. All right, fair Me- enough. Never There's 85 <laughs> of them. Just hide them out the wheelchairs.
3: And I also know that during filming, Foreman wouldn't let the actors see the dailies, so nobody was sure how their performance was looking or coming across. Just for no reason, can't <laughs> say there was for no reason. <laughs> so apparently, Michael Douglas said because of that, the cast in general started to lose the faith in Foreman, and apparently, Nicholson was so furious about it he'd only communicate to Foreman through the DP Haskell Wexler. Yeah, yeah. And Michael
1: Douglas said that, that was part of the reason that Haskell Wexler was fired because he was stirring the pot with other actors. Ah, uh, so right. We've got a bit more on that later on. Yeah. Okay. Jack Nicholson had been a losing Oscar nominee four times before, but that all Mm. changed with Cookie was Nest. And for his performance Mm -hmm. as McMurphy, he won Best Actor.
3: He did. A deserved win, do you think? Oh, absolutely. 100%. Easily. One of the best wins ever, I would say.
1: So great work from Jack Nicholson. One of the most famous lead performances in
2: Hollywood. Incredible. Definitely. Incredible.
1: The immovable object of McMurphy's irresistible force is Nurse Mildred Ratched, played by Louise Mm -hmm. Fletcher. Yep. The dominant figure at the Institute, Ratchet, is a cold, ruthless tyrant who rules with an iron fist, ultimately having Matt Murphy lobotomized at the climax. Mm. Yeah. She's something of a, ain't <laughs> she, Matt? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was left field. Wow.
3: Yeah. How is The Ratch and Louise Fletcher playing her? I think she actually has the hardest job in this film because she has to be the complete opposite of Nicholson. He can go big. He's got dialogue that he can just devour. He can rant, he can rave, Mm. he can inspire everyone. She can't do any of that. She's gotta be so calm, so precise, so quiet. Like I don't think she raises her voice once in this film. And the thing is, she doesn't have to. Mm. She is so terrifying at times, all it needs is one gesture. Or one look, like when McMurphy's in a therapy session and he's rippling that deck of cards and he's making that noise, she gives this little flinch and the look of disdain she gives him speaks absolute volumes. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. She (laughs) doesn't need a word of dialogue to express what she's thinking there. And that must have been so hard for Louise Fletcher because Foreman has essentially said, Jack, go for it, go big, eat up the screen. Louise, don't do any of that. Yeah. And that must be terrifying to hear, because you're just saying, well, I'm just going to get steamrolled by Nicholson here. But mm. she plays the contrast instead. You know, McMurphy can be like, rah, 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 ra rah, ra you know, 100 miles an hour. Ratched doesn't waste a single word. And every word that comes out of Fletcher's mouth is so carefully measured for maximum impact. Like when McMurphy refuses his medication and she says, if Mr. McMurphy doesn't want to take his medication orally, I'm sure we can arrange that he can have it some other way. Yeah. But I don't think that he would like it. Oh, (laughs) terrifying. Like, okay, right. I'll take it orally. That's (laughs) fine. (laughs) Because she just has this presence, and you can tell she has so much sway and so much control over these people, which is why she's perfectly happy to put it to the vote to change 13, because she knows she has the numbers and she knows they'll all still stand by her anyway. So, yeah, this is just such a wonderful performance for me. It
1: absolutely is. I mean, she'd appeared in three features before Cookie was Nest, Louise Mm. Fletcher, but never as a lead. And the vast majority of her career had been on TV, which Mm. makes it all the more astonishing that she rolls into Oregon State Hospital and just knocks it out of the park.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah. Yeah. When you're talking fictional villains, one of the classic archetypes is the authoritarian. And we've had a Mm. lot in films warden norton from shawshank is very good the may and jaws yep. is too the trunchbull from matilda is great yeah, yeah. and as much as i love she, seeing she is. bruce bogtrot stuffing his face with chocolate cake and as much <laughs> as i enjoy may vaughan suits nurse ratchet <laughs> is surely the classic authoritarian villain in movies yeah. from the first time we see her that first group therapy session she dominates the men she mm-hmm. asks the group to share and none of them will even look her in the eye We'll find out later, it's not because they're all so introverted or incapable of talking. It's because they're all scared of Ratchet. (laughs) They're terrified, yeah. Mm -hmm. That attitude is constant throughout the film, as is the way she looks. Her uniform is a key part of the character, and Ratchet Mm. knows it. At the end, when she gets to the party, one of her first actions is to ask Martini to get a hat. When she's like, My cap! My cat, yeah, <laughs> yeah, she Brilliant. knows the power the uniform gives her. A yeah. striking yeah. moment to me is when she walks into the ward after the party. There's no music, not even much of a reaction shot from the patients. But when we see Ratchet come in, I always feel like dread, and that comes mm-hmm. entirely from the previous two hours. Yeah. yeah, I do have more to say on Ratchet because we'll have a Patreon question coming on us shortly. But for now, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean she's excellent, and Louise Fletcher is excellent playing her, even yeah. better than Kai in Star Trek: Deep Space Nine. Well that's a high bar
3: John, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, good. Might better, to be honest. <laughs> I was gonna say there must be some performance. <laughs> I've no intention of watching Deep Space Nine. Yeah.
2: Ah, quite fancy, nurse Ratchet, maybe.
3: <laughs>
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> and I don't know why. The uniform? i don't know no i'm not going to be that fucking shallow no it's a personality guys <laughs> a winning personality a winning personality i don't know what gets me with uh, louise Fletcher and her, her performance here is how much she just personifies the system and we'll get into that mm-hmm. as well and how much she is basically all of the rules that everyone she is the rule book but it's the mystery she brings where does she go when she leaves work has she got a husband? Has mm. she got a life? I often think yeah. that, yeah. I would imagine she's just got like uniforms hung up. There's a white bed. <laughs> yeah, and there's just yeah. one seat, like, you know, like yeah, psycho. Yeah. Just in the middle of the in the middle yeah. of this room that's completely white. And she's just eating cornflakes and waiting to go back to work it's <laughs> yeah. just it's what she brings mm. to that there's no warmth and it's the way Milo's Foreman knows that and he does them push-ins at the same time where she does that look that is a winning formula and he uses it a couple of times and every time he does it's chilling but you know pretty sexy <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, Michael Douglas said that five big stars turned the part of Roger down before Louise Fletcher was asked because, he said, it wasn't fashionable to play a villain in the 70s. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I bet. He's never named the five stars, but according to other sources, they were Jane Fonda, Shirley MacLaine, Faye Dunaway, Ellen Burson, and Audrey Hepburn. Wow. wow. I mean, stars is right. Dunaway would have been great, like, yeah. Yeah, I think of all the possible casts we've ever done, Faye Dunaway's Nurse Ratchet is the easiest yes. to imagine ever. Yeah. yeah she would have been brilliant.
3: Definitely. Yeah, straight go with Chinatown. And the thing is, Form got to Fletcher because when he was casting the part of Candy, who's the prostitute later in the film, he was considering Shelley Duval. And so his research, he watched a film she did was called uh, Thieves Like Us for Research. Mm-hmm. And that did also saw Louise Fletcher, which is why he got her uh, into audition. And he auditioned her again over six months. Kept telling her she wasn't approaching her right, but kept calling her back anyway until he eventually did cast her.
2: Just slowly breaking her down, breaking her whole yeah. human personality down until yeah. she comes in just sick. <laughs> <Yeah>.
3: <laughs> Probably waiting for Dunaway
1: done away to change her mind, which never happened. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I saw an interview with Louise Fletcher where she said she was delighted to get the gig, but had two big concerns. She'd never played a villain like Ratchet before, and she knew she was acting alongside Jack Nicholson, who has a huge mm. presence on screen. But I mean, yeah. that contrast between the two, we've talked about it. It works brilliantly. Yeah, oh, it's, yeah. Great it's chemistry nice,
3: isn't it?
2: And Fletcher purposely wore no makeup in the film, just Vaseline on her lips. And she chose Ratchet's hairstyle herself. It's very 1940s to show how mm. uptight and traditional she is, but it's also yeah. kind of devil horns as well at the same it time. Is. Yeah. Which I think it's incredible. Yeah. yeah, it is. Yeah. And Fletcher said that Ratchet believes the, that what she's doing is for the good of the patients, but it's just, mm. it, she's just misguided and kind of drunk on the power, which I can yeah. see as well. Brilliant.
3: Yeah.
1: Maybe it's the hair, Westie, that does it for you.
2: Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> the whole package.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, Louise Thatcher herself certainly wasn't uptight. Near the end of production, she whipped off her dress in front of the rest of the cast and stood in front of them, topless. She yeah. said, I was thinking, I'll show them I'm a real woman under here. Yeah. And then she got a photographer in, stood in her underwear again, and recreated the famous Betty Grable World War II pinner poster, where she's looking over her shoulder.
0: Brilliant. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then right. signed it, Mildred. And gave Amazing. a copy to the cast and crew.
1: <laughs> Some saucy behavior on this. Yeah, absolutely yeah. fantastic. Well, so love
2: that. I was born like 20 years <laughs> earlier, I would have been that photographer.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
3: Breaking the door down. <laughs> and what's interesting is that in the book, Ratchet is never given a first name, but in the film, as we know, it's Mildred. And it was Louise Fletcher who came up with the name herself, and it came up because. Nicholson had asked her, Well, what's Ratchet's first name? And then the scene, you know, when McMurphy returned from shock therapy and he called her Mildred, that was an ad lib by Nicholson. And Fletcher said it's a favorite moment in the film. Nice. Lovely that. Yeah. Mildred, though. No wonder she's such a square. Yeah.
1: <laughs>
2: yeah. Absolutely <laughs> it's ageless. Perfect, it's an ageless <laughs> yeah, it's name, an ageless <laughs> <laughs> character. She could be yeah. like just 50 forever or yeah. like whatever, however old she And you never, you just don't know, do you? Mm.
1: A benefit of being in all the right movies, Patreon, is that we'll answer your questions on the show. We have one of those now. It's on Nurse Ratchet, and it comes from one of our classic patrons. That's George Anderson. Hello, George, mate. Hello, George. So George asks, "Does ATRM consider Nurse Ratchet a villain? She's no angel, but could a case be made that Matt Murphy should share the villain spotlight because of the mess he creates, or is there truly a villain
3: at all?" Mm. Three questions for the price of one from George.
2: Wow, yeah. Mm -hmm.
3: What do you think, Matt? I think it's a great question, and it's definitely the part of the film that I think I've done the biggest 180 on over the years, because when I first watched this, 80-19, it's so easy to get caught up in Nicholson's performance, to be like, yeah, fuck the man, break the system. Yeah. But the more and more I come back to this, the more sympathy I do have for Ratchet. You know, she is only trying to do her job the best she can. And make no mistake, McMurphy doesn't do half the things he does to help these people. He does them because he's bored and because he wants to wind her up. So a lot of what she does is a direct consequence of what he does. And yes, I agree, she is too much of a stickler for the rules, to say the least, probably drunk on power. But don't overlook that scene when she's the only one that says McMurphy should stay. Everyone else wants to send him away, make him a problem for someone else. She's the only one who says, no, we should keep him here. We should try to help him. Mm -hmm. So I think it's much more complex than just saying, oh, Ratchett's the villain. McMurphy's the hero. I think he should take equal blame for everything that transpires. And ultimately, she's only doing the job. So if you want the really pretentious answer, then I think the system is the villain. Nice. Wow. oh well, god a bit of disagreement yeah
1: oh <laughs> because i think there definitely is a villain and it shouldn't be shared by matt murphy as i see it the villain is absolutely nurse ratchet really right okay. i do get george's question and we had a similar one from jacob perry too and obviously matt agrees to an extent mm-hmm. but i think the reason it's easy to question if ratchet is the villain is because and this is the brilliance of the character for me it's all so subtle ratchet mm-hmm. never physically hurts anyone she rarely even raises a voice but when yeah. you dig deeper I think she's despicable. She uses the patients under her care as a foil to get what she wants, like the baseball game we talked about or when Matt Murphy wants to turn the music down. She clearly isn't bothered about the wants of the men, as she shows when the vote goes against her and she doesn't change her mind. She just exploits them to control them. Then the doctors know Matt Murphy's faking it. They all say as much when we have the meeting about the fishing trip. Rasha's there, so she knows there's nothing wrong with Matt Murphy, but still has to keep him on the ward. And unlike you, Matt, I don't think she just want to help him because she doesn't even try to help him at all. She has him lobotomized. So for me, it was about revenge, yeah. not care. Right, And okay. also, she has the orderly Washington dishing out beatings regularly. I mean, what sort of health care mm-hmm. is that? The end after the party, the orderlies wake up the inmates really violently by roughing them up yeah. and banging them against the walls. I mean, these mm-hmm. men are not well. They're very, mm-hmm. very poorly and they get threat like absolute shit. In the one mm. place that should be looked after, the hospital. And Ratchet might not dish out the beatings herself, but she's entirely responsible for creating that poisonous environment. And she does mm. it intentionally. And that, to me, is why she's the villain. And to be honest, I'm not done on that yet. I've got more coming on <laughs> Ratchet's villainy <laughs> okay, in wow. the end section. Okay, yeah. <laughs> we'll go <going> to this.
3: <laughs> We're definitely going to disagree at the end. We then. are, I think, yeah. And Westy, it's one to one here, so. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> the voters want one, Mr. West. <laughs> yeah. The peacemaker, as usual. <laughs> Clooney. <laughs>
2: yeah i'm cloning yeah it's nine to one to one nine to nine one to one here we go let's make it two one somewhere um when i heard it was a question from george i thought it was just gonna be like is she scarier than the shark in (laughs) joe's but it's not that she is Um, well yeah i guess so like i said you know we're more talking about louise fletcher and what she brings to the character i think i'm kind of in the middle which is really boring i do think there's a system there but bearing in mind this was Based in 1963, nobody understood these conditions. Nobody really understood what was what was going on. And it is there will be a time where if you're in charge of this ward and all of these people's well-being, you don't know what to do. They could be doing anything at any point, go off it at any point. They choose violence, so you have to choose violence back. It's kind of the only way to do it before they can understand most of these conditions. And I don't really think she's trained enough for the role. I think she's taught to do things and told to do things and told to keep this in order in a place that doesn't have any order and how else do you do that through narcissistic tendencies which I guess anyone who's in that position would have them yes she does go a little bit too far yes she does push the patients a little bit too far but at the same time she doesn't know how far they can be pushed because the conditions weren't necessarily understood and to answer the question I do think that she is a villain yes but so is McMurphy he's as much of a villain as she is in the real world she's a villain in there and he's a villain out there so Mm. I think for what he's done you're just bringing villains together in a world that is completely misunderstood and I think that's the whole point of the film so
1: there you have it Mm. that's straight down the middle from us then isn't it I think
2: (laughs) (laughs) as much as I I can be I I didn't didn't even change that I didn't change anything that was exactly what I had
1: (laughs) Well, for her performance as Nurse Ratched, Louise Fletcher also won an Oscar, beating out mm. the likes of Anne-Margaret and Glenda Jackson to win Best Actress. Mm. Also, she's in less than 17% of the film, which is a record yeah. low for a Best Actress winner. Wow,
2: yeah. nice. Yeah.
1: And have you seen Louise Fletcher's acceptance speech at the Oscars? Yes. Yeah, her parents are both deaf, and she did sign language to say, you, yeah. you taught me to dream and you are seeing my dream come true. Thank you. That's Amazing. amazing. That.
2: If only Nurse Ratchet had just had that much empathy, it would have been fucking sound, wouldn't it? (laughs) Well, yeah. Louise Fletcher, (laughs)
1: lovely. As Nurse Ratchet, though, awful. But one of the great Hollywood villains? Absolutely brilliant. Not a villain, though.
2: Not Not really.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's the two leads in the film, and we would be remiss not to go into some detail on the secondary cast who play the patients in the Institute. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We've talked a little about Harding and Cheswick already. We're going to talk more about the Chief shortly. And there's also Banchini, Seafeld, Fredrickson, Tabor. That's Christopher Lloyd in his first yeah, film. He's great. Yeah.
3: He's really good.
1: Ellsworth, the dancer. Yeah. yeah. Scanlon with the huge beard. Yeah. Always reminds me of Westy <laughs> 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 He's too quiet, man. He's too quiet. <laughs> so, who are you going to talk about, Westy
2: I'm going to talk about Billy Bibbit who's played beautifully by Brad Dourif. It's one Mm. of them performances that stays with me, and it's really, really powerful. And it's just the innocence that he brings to this character, the mother issues that he's got, how anxious he is, the depression that he's going through. He's just terrified of his own shadow, and he plays it so well to the point where, when I first watched this, I wasn't aware who Brad Dourif was. And you Mm. kind of go, is this guy really crazy? The stutter that he does is perfectly done, yeah. perfectly timed. It, the the pain that he shows, the the lack of excitement that he he kind of brings to the whole role. I mean, he's he's most famous for the voice of Chucky, right? I think, he's yeah, actor yeah, of, yeah, which is ridiculous, or his Worm Tongue in Lord of the Rings. They're fantastic yeah. in that as well. I think he's he's just a wonderful, wonderful actor. And this character, I feel so sorry for. I just want to get a hold yeah. of him and just kind of have the, exactly the same reaction that Murphy does. You know, he just needs to just get out on his own. It's absolutely yeah. Absolutely inspired. I love Brad Dourif in this. I love everybody in this, but for me, Billy Bibbit really sticks in my mind as a very, very memorable character.
1: Yeah, when I watched this, I actually did know who Brad Dourif was. Right, similar to Louis Fletcher, he played Suda in Star Trek Voyager. Oh, for fuck's sake!
3: <laughs> <laughs> if Nicholson had been in Star Trek, you would have queued him up. Nicholson was famous for completely from Star Trek. He
2: wouldn't, he wouldn't fucking shut up about it. <laughs>
1: But yeah, as Billy, I think he's very good. Bud Court was considered as Billy at one point, I assume when Hal Ashby was involved, because Bud Court plays Harold in Harold and Maud. Yes. But this is his first ever feature film, Brad Dourif, and it's no surprise that he went on to have a very good career, because he's clearly a good actor, yeah. Yeah. One of the most realistic depictions of an extreme stutter, I think I've seen. Mm -hmm. And then he went on to have some big roles, like you mentioned in Westy, Grima Mm Wurngtung, in Lord of the Mm -hmm. Rings, huge. Yeah. He voiced Chucky in Child's Play. And I think Mm. this probably still, though, stands up for me as the best I've seen him.
2: Yeah, I love him as Wormtongue. He is great as Wormtongue. He's not not given enough screen time. I think this is, yeah, I mean, to bring this level of of artistry to this role, Mm. this believability for his first role as well and how young he was, it's absolutely exceptional.
3: Yeah, I'm going to talk about someone who brings a little bit of light to the proceedings. Sorts of performance I always latch into, and it's Danny DeVito as Martini. <laughs> <Brilliant>. <laughs> Just a really
0: hit me, hit me. The thing he's so
3: likable, he's so lovable, he's really engaging, but an absolute nightmare to play games with. Yeah, hit me, hit me, hit me. Doesn't understand anyway. Tearing the cigarette up in two. I bet <laughs> yeah. a nickel. Tries to put it back together. I bet a dime. I bet a dime. <laughs> <Latch it. laughs>
2: you get shit try and you smoke it shit. <laughs>
3: yeah but it doesn't matter what anyone says to him he's still so cheery throughout he doesn't realise how frustrating and irritating he is to everyone else who tries to play by the rules I mean yeah. Monopoly's a frustrating game of the best of times so if you were playing with Martini just going hotel Hotel, hotel, <laughs> on random squares. Oh, my God. He would just, like, lose it. So, yeah, just a wonderful performance. You can't dislike him no matter how annoying he gets. I really enjoy DeVito on this.
2: When he has that moment when he turns out ratchets, like, how are we going to win our money back?
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: that's really good. Fucking brilliant. <laughs> he's so innocent, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, it's great. Yeah, Martini's really funny. It is no surprise because Diane DeVito obviously has great comic chops. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, it makes me laugh whenever they're playing poker. All the hit me, hit me until (laughs) McMurphy's like, I can't hit you Martini, it's not your turn. (laughs) (laughs) With all
2: the this and the this
1: (laughs) But DeVito was and still is really good friend with Michael Douglas. They'd yeah. been mm-hmm. roommates yeah, yeah. in New York in the 1960s. And then DeVito had played Martini in the Broadway production of Cook. It was Nest in 71. Right. So he was a shoo-in to play Martini. Yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah. imagine Douglas had cast somebody else in the part his best mate <laughs> <Yeah>. already played. <laughs>
0: yeah, his housemate. <laughs>
3: yeah. How was work Awkward. today, man? You fuck off. <laughs> and also, Mimi Sarkisian, who plays Nurse Pilbara, Ratchet's assistant. She was also in that play with DeVito, which is why she was cast. all oh, right right, nice. Yeah, very nice. <laughs> very nice. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Double date
2: for us there, John, is it?
3: <laughs> I'll
2: take Ratchet out. I'll take you over Ratchet for right?
3: <laughs> <laughs> but DeVito later said that because the shooting schedule was so demanding and crazy, as we've already talked about. He developed a coping mechanism, which was he created an imaginary friend to have imaginary chats with. Yeah. Hmm. But he did become a bit concerned about this. So at one point he asked Dean Brooks, like, is this okay? And Dean Brooks said, Yeah, nothing to worry about, as long as he can identify that your imaginary friend isn't actually real. I
2: mean, how do you do that?
3: (laughs) But yeah. Yeah. What if Dean Brooks was his imaginary friend? (laughs) (laughs) How would
1: he know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, one thing about that, did we? So, a big ensemble cast in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Summer went on to become big stars after the film, and in our two leads, Jack Nicholson and Louise Fletcher, one of the great protagonist-antagonist on-screen relationships.
2: Oh, Um, yeah. yeah, Unbelievable. unbelievable. very, very best. Definitely.
1: This episode of All the Right Movies is sponsored by BetterHelp. Without a healthy mind, being truly happy and at peace is hard. The good news is, therapy works. But what is therapy exactly? It's whatever you want it to be. Maybe you're not feeling motivated right now and would like some tools to help, or maybe you're feeling insecure in relationships or at work, not dealing well with stress. Whatever you need, it's time to stop being ashamed of normal human struggles and start feeling better because you deserve to be happy. And now, you don't have to worry about finding an in-person therapist near you to help. And, special offer to all the Right Movies listeners, you can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at BetterHelp.com slash A-T-R-M. That's BetterHelp.com slash A-T-R-M. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. The Middle Into the middle of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and as McMurphy's influence on the group grows, so does the inmates' bravery and we have two big moments that highlight the max impact. Mm. The huge moment the chief speaks is one of them, but before yeah. that, everyone's gone fishing. They have? Yes, they have. After McMurphy escapes the institute by scaling the fence and dropping miles out of that tree,
0: <laughs> yes. really high. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: He commandeers a school bus and, with the inmates on board, picks up his pal candy and heads to the North Pacific.
3: Yep. How does it all work out, Matt? Not particularly well, really, for anyone involved, <laughs> I would say. Yeah. Um, yeah, this fishing trip made for a start. absolute shock and lack of security in this place. Ridiculous. Not one guard sees McMurphy scale the fence I know. and then jump off the massive tree. <laughs> They're only a few feet away. <laughs> yeah. the, the basketball game isn't that interesting. Yeah. What I do find interesting though, is McMurphy gets out and he doesn't make a run for it, like he sees a chance to do something with the patients instead, Mm. and he chooses to do that, even though he must know they're going to get caught. Whereas if he did make a run for it by himself, there's a much better chance he could get away. So it's just that little shift and change of direction for his character here that I find interesting. But the trip itself, I mean, it's like the worst school trip ever, isn't it? Like (laughs) there's, There's these little glimpses of... McMurphy doing the right thing. You know, he can teach them the stuff. He can be inspirational. You know, he is getting like a real proper breath of fresh air into the lungs, but that can only go so far. And, you know, he doesn't have that much control. You know, Cheswick should be the last person in charge of steering this boat. Definitely should be. <laughs>
2: Mac, Mac.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Don't give him the wheel. Uh, Martini, obviously he doesn't have a clue what's going on. We've mentioned very briefly Christopher Lloyd as Tabor. I do love the look here when he gets called Dr. Tabor. He loves that. Yeah. the big yeah. eyebrow. Takes it really seriously. <laughs> so, yeah, the scene, it's it's like a real moment of sunshine in the film. It, it's just joy for them, it's something really positive. But I've never been able to shake the feeling that it kind of feels like this is from a slightly different film that the have yeah. in here. It's yeah. weird.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I get why this scene's in there. It sets up Candy for the party scene later Mm. on. It serves as a bonding session for the inmates. It's a key Mm -hmm. moment in terms of the impact McMurphy has on the patients. And I think it mixes up the visuals by getting us out from the Mm. one-note imagery of the hospital into the open sea. So it's important, but it is my least favourite part of the film, to be honest. Mm. It's well shot. The ocean imagery is great. It's funny. I like it when Candy gets on the bus and says, you all crazy? And Cheswick just nods his head like, oh yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. and on the boat but Murphy just getting in on with candy with all the guys standing outside on the deck no yeah. shame yeah. Huh? no yeah. shame some good things but the sequence drags for me to be honest mm. outside the hospital away from Roger, the narrative sags like a fishing line it starts mm. to feel yeah. a bit like a sitcom like when Cheswick and Harding yes. are fighting over who gets to steer the boat yeah. well shot sitcom, yeah. but with the Ratch gone it loses its potency for me yeah. so yeah Good to see some different images. They are some funny parts, but I am glad when we get back to the hospital as well. Yeah.
2: Yeah, again for me, I think this takes us out of the film a little bit. A little and a little bit too much for me. And I know you said you felt you felt it was well shot there, John. I mean I don't Right. particularly think it's it matches the rest of the film at all mm. and i know it has mm. some themes in there and i know mcmurphy thinks if i just get these guys out of the hospital into some fresh air then we'll see the error of the ways and they'll think oh we're fine let's just get on with it mm. again this is a really selfish move from him Mm. Just so we can hoot up with Candy, just so he can have his own way, just so we can do what he yeah. wants to do out to sea, just so we can prove the point against Nurse Ratchet. But again, I just because I feel like this was one of the last sequences that was shot mm-hmm. and it really sags in the middle for me as well. It really starts to drag. And it's if it had been a little bit shorter, fine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, Everyone, all of the cast didn't like it. Everyone except Jack Nicholson got seasick. What made it worse was it took a whole week to shoot it. And (sighs) Devito said he was queasy thinking about it. Like a whole week to shoot that sequence. What a waste of time.
1: (laughs) Yeah. It makes yeah. me queasy when he's trying to peer through the window to catch Matt
3: Murphy and Candy at <laughs> <laughs> it. Yeah, awful. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Hit me. Yeah. And there is a couple of other notable small appearances here as well. When they come back, we see that crowd standing on the pier. If you look closely, you'll see that one of them is Angelica Houston. Oh, right, really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Jack Nicholson and Angelica Houston were partners for quite a few oh, yeah, years, yeah. weren't they? Which I guess is why she's there. And also the harbour master who we see trying to stop them get on the boat, He wasn't an actor. He, he, he was this random guy called Mel Lambert, who was a used car dealer, and Michael Douglas had just met him on a flight. Oh, well, they are.
2: Anyone's allowed in this film, aren't they? Yeah, exactly, yeah. Just, just on, random it. people. Yeah. yeah. You want to be me, a film? Fine. <laughs> But it's also
1: funny when Matt Murphy's introducing the guys to the harbour master, and he's like, "This is Doctor Tabor, Doctor Fredrickson, yeah. the famous yeah. Doctor Scanlon, Mister Harding," and Harding's furious. <laughs> <Yeah>.
2: <laughs> you see, I love all that bit. It's just when they actually get out if they yeah, hadn't got yeah. out. I don't know, Foreman wasn't actually keen on the fishing scene as well, so me and Foreman in exactly the same camp, so that's fine.
0: <laughs> in more ways than one, I think. <laughs> of course, we're both nuts.
1: <laughs> he, wanted to, he wanted to change it,
2: he wanted the whole film to be shot on the ward so that yeah. when Chief escapes at the end, it would be more dramatic. You yeah. know, and I think that's that's exactly how it how it should have played out.
1: Yeah, I wouldn't disagree. Mm -hmm. I mean, when he's created that great setting, the confines of the hospital governed by ratchet, to take us outside of it, I think it's a risk. And the film doesn't totally justify it. No, definitely
2: not. There's no reason for it to happen. Nothing actually happened. If someone had an accident on that boat, if they'd lost somebody, if there was repercussions for it, there's nothing. They just go away and they Mm. come back. Mm. That was it.
1: Yeah. So our first time away from the Institute, and it's nice to be out, but also good to get back. Better to get back, yeah. Yeah. Get the kettle on. Murphy's effect on the group by this point is undeniable, but there's one patient on whom the max impact is particularly profound. It's the chief. It is the chief. big as a mountain and quiet as the frontier. <laughs> in these scenes we see their bond develop as the chief saves McMurphy from Washington before speaking for the first time in the film. <sighs> yeah. And then we can't shoot him up. Blab <laughs> a <laughs> <Flat my> mouth. <laughs> How are these scenes for you, Westy? The group therapy
2: madness? Yeah, another great group group therapy session, the second one. But it's just the way that this is shot in contrast to the first one. We open with a wide shot of everyone together. This is very limited yeah. on mm-hmm. the singles. It's basically the group is framed as the group. So they're all part of it now. And then when we cut back to Ratchet, she's on a single. So it's them against her. It's Ratchet turning this whole group against McMurphy in such a genius way. And you find out that they're all voluntary in such a like a nasty way, apart from Tabor, obviously the chief mm-hmm. and McMurphy, they're all in there because they need to be in there. But everyone mm-hmm. else has a choice. And it's just his complete disbelief if every Billy Jesus Christ, tell me yeah. you're committed. And it's the when it just starts kind of ramping up and ramping up, and it's just that frustration. And it's just Cheswick, he just wants his cigarettes. I want my cigarettes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think it's just really, really brilliant. And there's that wonderful, wonderful speech from Mac Murphy where he just turns to all of them and says, What do you think you are? Crazy or something? Mm. You know, and it's it, it's really the time where you feel like Mac is trapped and the power mm. shifts. And it's yeah. a genius shift of power and how Ratchet turns that round and turns the whole group against Mac Murphy, but Foreman frames them all as a singular group and then it starts to fall apart. Genius.
3: Yeah, some nice visual storytelling in there. Yeah, yeah. brilliant. I loved it as well. I think it's a really well-timed and well-placed scene as well. Because up until now, McMurphy, he's been funny, he's been charismatic, he's been inspirational... I think this is the first time we really see that other side of him. We see him being out of control. We see him being violent and losing his temper. Yeah, he's frustrated. Um, see the mask has slipped now. Yeah, yeah, you see the mask slipping. But I think also this is when you first really start to see the effect he's having on the others. Like, as he said, in a visual manner, them all grouped together. But would Cheswick have stood up to Ratchet in the past, the way that he does here, when no. he's demanding the cigarettes? Yeah. If it wasn't for... Mac Murphy, don't think so. And it's a scene that just really taps into that theme, doesn't it? Individuality versus conformity, and Nicholson just on absolute fire here in this yeah. scene. Great stuff.
1: Yeah, this scene's probably the most memorable moment from my first watch of the film. Mm. I remember being nearly as shocked as Mac Murphy when I found out half the inmates were there by choice. Yeah, it's yeah.
2: fantastic twist, like yeah. yeah.
1: And what starts becoming apparent as well is that Mac has a lot more respect for his fellow inmates than Ratchet in the hospital does. Yeah. That line you mentioned, Westy, where he tells them they're no crazier than the average asshole out on the street. Yeah. That's one of the most powerful and thought provoking lines in the film for me. I mean, at what point does someone cross that line? Especially yeah. if they're yeah. committing themselves, should most yeah. of them even be there? Yeah. Yeah. Also, Washington. Is an asshole. He's
2: doing his job, man. Yeah.
1: Now (laughs) we agree on that one, John. Yeah. Yeah. When he's got Matt Murphy pinned to the floor and he's going, it's over, Matt Murphy. Yeah. Yeah. Really, it's meant to be looking after these people, not wrapping your belt around your knuckles. (laughs) Yeah.
3: Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. And I think after what you see here, you need like a moment to lift you back up. So when the chief lets Mac know that he can talk and he can hear and you get his (laughs) first words, it's just pure joy because it's so unexpected. It's like a twist you don't see coming at all. There's I love how there's no foreshadowing at all. There's no evidence. There's no mm. hint that he's that he is anything other than this big, mute, mountain of a guy. And it's a real pick-me-up moment. Like after everything's kicked off, they're all in trouble. It's the perfect time for the chief to drop to drop his facade here for McMurphy. And I just love how it's such an innocuous thing to break the silence over, chewing gum. Yeah. Just go on. Thank you. <laughs> <And> like, <laughs> Nicholson's reaction his face stamping yeah yeah, Jesus Christ yeah Yeah. (laughs) because he's thinking did he just if I give him another one will he say something else and all this (laughs) it's brilliant because just before this as well we've seen Cheswick dragged away screaming so no something bad is going to happen to him but we don't know what so we dread to think what's going on so this moment with the Chief, it just relieves the tension. And I really enjoy Will Sampson in this. I think he's really good as the Chief. Yeah, he's and fantastic. Yeah. He's, it's just the way he's been able to be so clever, to keep this from everybody, to just stand there and observe and be so patient mm-hmm. until he's found the one person worthy of breaking the silence for, which is Mac. And Mac, in return, he's found his equal. He's found the person he can count on to escape with. And then once you get this moment, which picks you back up, you're into the electroshock therapy scene.
2: Yeah, you get Cheswick wheeled past after he comes out. It's heartbreaking, that. It
3: is. I mean, this scene, just whoosh, every time, just brings you right back down again. Yeah, it's amazing as well,
2: because the Chiefs done everything that Murphy wanted to do in field. Yeah. 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 Filled mm-hmm. everyone.
1: Yeah, it is a big moment. The big twist of the film, really. Mm. And I get why his first words are thank you. It's almost like he's thanking Matt Murphy for sparking the change in him and everyone. Yeah. But it would definitely have been funnier if his first words had just been, mmm, juicy fruit from nowhere. (laughs) 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 Should have been, yeah. Ah, juicy fruit. (laughs) Big as a tree trunk, Chief Bromden. He is played by Will Sampson, and I think it's a very visual performance from him. Mm. I mean... He's hardly Catherine Hepburn, is he? But he looks perfect. <laughs> what a
3: reference. Yeah. Can't imagine Catherine Hepburn as the Chief, like, as good as she was. <laughs>
1: and a great basketball player.
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. Michael Douglas said that because they were looking for somebody with such a specific look, the Chief wasn't easy to cast. And it was actually Mel Lambert, the used car salesman that were mentioned earlier, mm. who's actually in the film by accident who recommended samson so douglas said that lambert called him one day from his car lot and said michael the biggest son of a bitch indian came in the other day
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah we're quoting mel lambert there obviously native american for us (laughs) yeah of course yeah (laughs) but he was a park ranger in oregon will samson and also an artist Right. Right. Foreman said that he had paintings hung in the Smithsonian in Washington. Wow. Wow. And yeah, I saw a footage from the set where Will Sampson says, I'm a painter, don't call me an actor. Well, nice. Okay. I mean enough. I'll call him whatever he wants, to be honest. Yeah. Call him what you want, Just don't
2: call him in the morning. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and that is the end of Act Two. It's all happening, big character moments and reveals as we get closer to the inevitable. The final clash between Murphy and Ratchet. Oh, mm. gold. The crew. A lot of unknown faces in front of the camera and one flew over the cuckoo's nest and some slightly better-known ones behind it. hmm Yeah. We're talking about Jack Nitscher as composer and Haskell Wexler and Bill Butler as the directors of photography shortly, but, as ever, the writing 1st
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yep. So, the credited screenwriters of One Flew Over the Cookie's Nest are Lawrence Halbin and Bo Goldman. Lawrence Halbin was an actor-turned-screenwriter, and this, it seems, was his only film writing credit. Well, yeah. Whereas Bo Goldman had experience as a Broadway lyricist and writer, and a TV writer. Mm-hmm. He had written one film before, The Paradigm Case, in 1962, but Cookie's was
3: Nest was his first film that would be remembered. Mm-hmm. Right. So, what do you think of the writing, Matt? I think it's a very, very intelligent and very detailed piece of writing, and I think it probably gave people a real fresh perspective on these issues and these practices. Um, I mean, I can't say I've seen loads, but I think portrayals of hospitals like this that I've seen in films before were always probably quite melodramatic, like every patient would be in a straight jacket and they'd be ranting and raving, and there's a bit of that in this book. I think the way the writing details the day-to-day lives is quite something. You know, things like the calming music playing throughout. Yeah. Just queuing up patiently to get your medication, the monotonous therapy sessions, which yeah. are actually just talking about the most ordinary things. It's one of the, those t- depictions where it's remarkable how unremarkable it is. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, yeah. oh, That's what goes on there. And I think the writing does downplay a lot of what people would expect these places to be like. And I think another big part of the writing is that theme of uniformity versus individuality, which, you know, my perspective on that in this film has changed over the years because I think it's easy to look at McMurphy and say, yeah, he wants everyone to live their own lives. He wants them to get out of the queue. He wants them to get off medication, make their own decisions for a change. And that's how I initially took it. And that's great, but I think it's more complex than that because who's McMurphy to say that is better for everyone? Like if some people to get through life feel the need to check into somewhere like this, to have a bit of routine, to have a bit of uniformity. Is there anything really wrong with that, if that's what they genuinely want? Um, yeah. I mean, obviously, the practices that go on here, I think that's a different matter entirely to talk about. But yeah, that theme, which is front and centre in the film with all those details, I think it's a lot more complex than I used to think it was. Yeah, there is a lot going on. I mean, we mentioned the Ratchet's the classic
1: authoritarian archetype, and the story mm. structure is the kind that often goes along with that kind of villain, the saviour narrative. Where a main character rescues a group of people from their kind of circumstances, like Andy Dufresne gives hope to the inmates at Shawshank Prison, Mm -hmm. Cool Hand Luke does the same in a Florida prison camp. Yeah, Matt Murphy is the light in like the darkness of the hospital. He brings the patients hope, mainly I think, by showing them how to express themselves and regain their identities. Yeah, Mm. as soon as Matt Murphy shows up, he brings laughter to the ward, not just from us, the audience. Mm. Matt Murphy himself laughs a lot in the film. Yeah, he does. Um, Yeah. But also, through Matt Murphy, Billy has sex. I mean, presumably, we don't say it. Mm. Matt Murphy inspires the chief, previously deaf and dumb, to speak, and then Mm. escape. That's all huge, but what makes it even better for me is how that's developed further, and there's this constant thematic battle between the light and the dark. It's personified in McMurphy and Ratchet, obviously, but it's in the narrative structure as well. When something positive happens, it's almost always undercut immediately by something negative.
3: Mm.
1: Billy has sex, but minutes later cuts his own throat. I mean, I can definitely relate to having a one-night stand that makes you want to kill yourself, but not actually going through <laughs> with it. <laughs> then, the chief speaking, is an exhilarating moment, but mm. seconds later, Cheswick's wheeled past, having undergone shock therapy, and he's just yeah. like a gibbering wreck. Yeah, That kind of positivity being abruptly ended by something shocking happens all the way through the film. So, excellent writing for me, with layers to it, mm. and that they managed to mine a lot of humour in there, is really impressive. Martini cheating at every game is always
2: a joy. Yeah, yeah definitely.
0: <laughs>
2: yeah, I think the themes that you guys have touched on are, you know, very, very important, and it does explore things that people were scared to approach, especially in you know mid seventies, and I think that's why it resonated so much with so many people. What I get from it is, are the crazy people really crazy? Or are mm-hmm. they actually saying Is Nerds yeah. Ratchet more insane than they are trying yeah. to stick to these rules and to have some kind of formality to life and to have some kind of routine to life? Is that insanity? If you don't do that, you are deemed as being, you don't fit into society, therefore you must be insane. But mm-hmm. for me, that's what it, that's what the whole thing is trying to say is, you know, what is insanity? What is craziness? What is the point where it goes too far? Like you said, John, and I think one of the other things that it touches on very, very importantly is oppression and that we've got, all of the orderlies are all black and all of the inmates are all white. Mm -hmm. So you have that oppression from the black man on the white man inside of this Mm -hmm. institution where anything goes. And there's that reverse of oppression and they get the chance Mm -hmm. to do that. And they take full advantage of that. And they're taking out the oppression of their race on these people who are deemed to be insane. And I Mm -hmm. think that in itself is incredible theme that's just touched on in this film, as well as a lot of things I just touched on, which is what makes it, for me, very, very thought-provoking writing, very, very mature writing, and very, unfortunately, very timeless writing. Mm.
1: It definitely is timeless, I totally agree. Yeah. And in bringing the book to the screen, the first person Michael Douglas hired to write the screenplay was Ken Kesey, the author of the book. Yeah. Kesey did write a draft, but there were major creative differences with Douglas and Zance. so he left and was replaced by Lawrence Hauben and Bo Goldman. Mm. And Goldman actually went on to win quite a few screenwriting accolades, but said the greatest award I ever got was a chance to adapt Ken Kesey's novel.
2: Right. Yeah. I think they knew they were working with something really
3: special. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Not so nice for Kesey. He was furious. Of course he was. (laughs) It's all that LSD
2: wearing off. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So
3: the story in the book is essentially the same, but they did change quite a few details. So in the book, it's told from the point of view of the chief, and he narrates the story to the reader whereas obviously in the film they shift the perspective to McMurphy. Yeah, that was the main point of contention between Keith mm. and the
1: producers. He wrote the scripts from the Chief's point of view, and mm. Douglas and Zance weren't having it for a second. No. They wanted McMurphy's point of view, which I think cinematically probably does work better.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, the two characters of Chief and McMurphy in the book were stated to be in war veterans, which would right. kind of add right. to the characters and add to the, the backstory that they had. And I think if you knew that McMurphy had been in a war, you know, before mm-hmm. the six, even World War Two or even Korea, they'd kind of go, yeah, That under- understand that. understand mm-hmm. why he's doing what he's doing and the way he is. Yeah, you know?
1: yeah. Well, we get no backstories at all, hardly, do we? No. no.
2: And that's, that's in the book, and I think that's pretty important. Yeah.
3: And also in the book, they have these surreal dreamlike sequences, like this one moment where Ratchet touches a wall and it starts to bleed. And Casey did include these in his version of the screenplay, but obviously in the film, completely absent. Yeah, that's too far out, isn't it?
2: Yeah. Yeah, well, Kesey used to
1: work in a psychiatric hospital and took mm. part in a medical study to test the effects of LSD. Of course he did. Well, there we go. Yeah. He said that seeing the patients when he was off his box, not his words, they're my words. <laughs> <Not
2: that. laughs> He's an author, for Christ's sake. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that made him realize that therapy in straitjackets didn't solve the real problem. The problem mm. was society,
3: and that's where the idea of McMurphy and the story came from. Yeah, right. And also in the book, talking about McMurphy, he had quite a different personality. He was a tough guy who'd resort to violence to get what he wants. And in the poker games, they're not just playing for cigarettes, he's conning them out with the money as well.
1: Yeah. All of a sudden, Ken Kesey wanting Gene Hackman to play Matt Murphy makes a lot more mm-hmm. sense. It does, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Slamming heads Hackman off tables. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Washington <laughs> wouldn't have stood a chance against the big man. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> Hackman would have been shouting, it's over, Washington. Yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs> And then in the book, towards the end, McMurphy is mentally defeated by Ratchet and he begins to conform to the rules. And when Cheswick sees us, he feels betrayed and kills himself. Wow. Grim, yes. grim,
1: grim. Grim, grim. Yeah. On a lighter note, do you know where the title of the book and the film comes from? It's a
2: poem, isn't it?
3: Yeah.
1: Yeah, sort of. It comes from an old American nursery rhyme.
0: Right, okay. Right.
2: So
1: in the book, the chief says that his grandmother used to read it to him and it goes, one goes east, one goes west, one flew yeah. over the cuckoo's nest. Right. Which is better than British nursery rhymes about the Black Death and (laughs) Georgie Porgy
2: sex purpose. (laughs) Yeah, awful. Yeah, classic British oppression. Lovely. <laughs> Get that in your screenplay. <laughs> Casey said that in shifting the perspective and changing the character of McMurphy, the filmmakers had butchered his novel. I kind of see where he's coming from if he's not the protagonist. Fair enough. Mm-hmm. So he sued for 800,000 and 5% of the film's gross and it was settled out of court. So God knows how much he got. But he vowed never ever to watch the film and to his death in 2001, he always claimed that he'd never watched it.
1: Yeah, mm. Stephen King, fuck easy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. death massively high. Yeah. <laughs> Massive taking a, he's
2: taken a chapter out of King's book there. I like Terence Malick with a thin red line, never seen it. <laughs> <laughs> and
1: yeah, not long before he died, Keezy apparently told a story that one evening he was in bed watching late night TV. He was flipping through the channels and came across a film set in a mental hospital. He was struck by it immediately and was thinking, this is what the adaptation of Cook's Nest should have been like. And then Mm. after a minute or so, he realized that it was Cookie Who's Nest. (laughs) And he said that when he realized, he immediately turned the channel over. Spite. (laughs) So like, yeah, it's all right, but I'm still not watching it. (laughs) This is
2: exactly what it should have been like. Oh, shit.
1: (laughs) (laughs) For writing the screenplay that one flew over the Cookie Who's Nest, Lawrence Howman and Bo Goldman won Best Adapted Screenplay at the Oscars. Mm -hmm. Goldman then won another, actually, for Melvin and Howard in 1980. Oh, yeah. So the writing on One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, the process may not have been straightforward and Ken Kesey wasn't a fan, <laughs> but we think it turned out very well. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think it's brilliant. 100%. Onto the music now, when the composer on One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest was Jack Nitzsche. After rising to prominence in the 1960s, working with the likes of Phil Spector, the Rolling Stones, and Neil Young, if anything's going to send you to a mental hospital, it's those guys. <laughs> <laughs> After that, Nietzsche gravitated towards the film industry and scored performance with Jagger and Richards, still in there. Mm-hmm. Wow. The Exorcist with Mike Oldfield and William Friedkin.
0: Yeah. And mm-hmm. then
1: one flew over the cookie's nest with
2: Milos Foreman.
1: Outrageous collaborations, those. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Ridiculous. <laughs> Kesey wasn't the only one on LSD, surely
1: so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> Whether he's in
1: music or in film, Jack Nietzsche works with the Nutters.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: How's his work here, though, Westy?
2: I think his work here is wonderful. I think it's very, very uh, accessible. Again, we talk about when we talk about music a lot. It seems to be: is this a memorable? Does it have a theme? Does a character have a theme? Is it through the film? Is it repeated? Is it memor You know, is it memorable in that way? And I think for me, it's the juxtaposition between the institution and nature, and how that's transferred to the soundtrack. It's just underpinning. And I know he did all of the, the common music that's supposed to be going on. But for me, it's it's the end of the film, which we'll go on to. But I'll just touch on the, the music on the end of the film. Like when, you know, there's that moment with Chief. That music in that scene is yeah. just heartbreaking. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. melancholic, but it's triumphant at the same time. And I, I just really, really remember. And it's so memorable. And if he did nothing else in the whole score, but that final, final track. I think just that one track is worthy of all the accolades that he got for the film. Incredible stuff.
1: Yeah, I think when the film opened as well, it's really memorable. Yeah. The first shot is of Depot Bay in Oregon. The landscape with the mountains in the background and the river in the foreground. That shot was the main theme. I think if you stop the film there, a lot of people
2: would say they were watching a Western. Yeah, Yeah, it's that Native American influence as well.
1: Yeah. Definitely, yeah. That's how it feels to me. I think the music sounds like it's from a different genre a lot of the time. Mm. I'm not sure if that was done intentionally or not by Jack Nitscher, but it works really well because it creates this kind of slightly off-kilter juxtaposition between the music and the visuals that reflect the setting and the main characters, I think, very well. Yeah, And... The main theme, is it just me, or does that sound like Please Release Me by Engelbert Humberding?
2: <laughs> now you mentioned
1: it. <laughs> I'm sure it's got the same code structure, because I hear
2: Humperdinck every time. Very, very possibly, yeah. speaks probably just off his box, to use your term. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Everyone was, I think. Yeah. What year is this? <laughs> who gives a fuck? <laughs> <laughs> but
1: yeah, collaborating with all the crazies,
3: Jack Nietzsche, so who better to score one flow over the cookie was nest than him? Exactly. I think sometimes we we look at soundtracks the wrong way because we often say, don't we, oh, yeah, this is one I would own. This is one I'd get the vinyl for, I'd listen to this at home. But yeah. that's not always the point of soundtracks. You know, it's great when you can do that, but is it not? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, see, you know, con- conversely, the point oh, is <laughs> ultimately th- they've got to add to the film, and that's absolutely the case here with this one. You know, it, yeah, definitely. it's subtle and it's very sparsely used, but when it is used, it's really effective. But actually, then kind of what stands out to me is how there's no music at all in the hospital scenes, in the therapy scenes, Mm -hmm. apart from music they're playing on set. Like, a lesser film would stick something really saccharine or goofy over the top, but Foreman knows it's better without. So it's not a case of me liking it as such. It's a case of me thinking, yeah, that's really effective when it's used and when it's not used. So if I had a big something that stands out, I think that music along the opening, closing credits, that's performed on a board saw using wine glasses as percussion. Yeah. But I think just the creativity of that's amazing. Yeah, that is crazy. Just what he had
2: lying about after being with the stones. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs>
1: Exactly. i shuddered to yeah. think. i surprised didn't get Jimmy Page in there to do that. Exactly. I'm surprised the snare wasn't a fucking crack pipe.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> like just about everybody else on One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Jack Nietzsche was nominated for an Oscar. Mm. His for Best Original Score. Mm. He lost out to
3: would have been John Williams, wouldn't it, for Jaws? Of course it was.
0: Yeah. For
1: Jaws. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> <Hong Kong> e <player. laughs> <A> and F. <laughs> <Yeah. Dare it>. <laughs> 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 but Niche's work on Cookie was nest.
2: We're fans of it. Oh definitely. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I think I'll buy the vinyl if I'm allowed.
3: <laughs> Is he allowed, Matt? Well, you know, all, all three minutes of video, go for it.
2: Medication time.
3: The visuals are key to
1: the success of, well, any film, mm. and it's the cinematography we're looking at now. There were two credited directors of photography on One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Mm. That was Haskell Wexler and Bill Butler. Mm-hmm. We'll talk a little bit later on why there were two DPs, but for now, some serious expertise. Yeah, Matt. Going to Westy, are you?
3: How does One Flew Over the cookie's Nest look? I think it looks great, and it, it's very much the same as the music for me. It, it's about serving the story, and it's like form and direction. It, it's not necessarily going to grab your attention straight away, because it's quite straightforward, you know, straightforward shot choices, straightforward compositions, straightforward lighting. But the important thing is, it's the right thing to do for this story. So... It's not one where I can take it apart, like scene by scene and shot by shot and go, wow, that looks amazing. You know, the awesome striking images there to do with the actors, you know, when Nicholson is kind of having that conversation with Dr. Spivvy, and he's just slumped with his head in his hand, things like that. But every shot looks right and it looks correct and it all fits. And that's the most important thing, I think.
1: Yeah. It has an effortless feel, the visuals, Mm, I think. Yeah. There's a crane shot I really like at the start of the second group therapy session where ratchet addressing the group and the camera kind of glides in over yeah, everybody to exclude yeah, yeah. everybody else from the frame but her. That's really good. Yeah. I think in terms of how the film looks, Foreman wanted a very naturalistic yeah. look, like we mentioned before. But creating simplicity isn't always simple. Mm-hmm. And there's a few things I notice. The colour palette, I think, is very specific. The walls of the ward and the costumes of the orderlies and nurses are all white. The nurses is dressed in like a brilliant white, but mm. the inmates are in a, like a kind of dingy white. Yeah. I mean, that's about as subtle a difference as you can get. <laughs> Maybe to muddy the lines between which side is which. Yeah, and the lighting is very natural and subtle, and the camera movements are mostly noticeable in how little the camera moves. Yeah, and again, I think this is because Foreman wanted to feel very realistic. Mm. He wants us to feel like we're sitting in the hospital in those sessions. And what's interesting, though, and you've kind of touched on this, Westy. Are the times when they break that rule and the camera does move often seem to revolve around Ratchet? Yeah. There's the shot I just mm. mentioned, the one I mentioned earlier in the basketball scene, the low angle pushing at the window. Mm-hmm. And there's another in the session where Harden loses his cool that you were told about, Wesley, where the yeah. camera slowly pushes in on Ratchet to so end in like a close up yeah. on her face. It's almost as if sometimes she's controlling the camera herself. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Yeah. So visually, I like it a lot. Very subtle, yet somehow mm-hmm. still very striking at the same time.
2: Yeah, yeah. I think the biggest praise we can give the film is that it doesn't feel like it's split down the middle at all. It doesn't feel like there's two DPs on it. it doesn't feel like there's yeah. a massive difference. You kind of see yeah. where Bill Butler came in and and Wexler left. Apart from maybe Bill Butler comes in and then they say, "Right, let's get these fuckers on a boat." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he's <laughs> done Jaws. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> right, let's do that. Any yellow barrels yeah. we can hide in the water? No,
1: <laughs> I've got a special camera for this.
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> where did you get that from,
1: Spielberg?
2: <laughs> but like you said, John, there's them slow push-ins that seem to be in the first half of the film. And then in the second half of the film, we'll go for more wide shots of the group. Mm. It's a little bit more ambitious in its lens choice. Like we say, there's not a lot of camera movements, even especially when there's a brawl. That's when the camera gets very, very erratic. But yeah. apart from that, the only movement we get is the, the inmates and the characters themselves. And I think Foreman would put that across to whoever was shooting this and say, the movement comes from the frame. The frame doesn't move. And I think that that is really, really important to it, but I know Wexler did say there was only a minute or two of this film that I didn't shoot when he saw the final cut right oh, really
3: but
0: right. well, right. you don't
2: know how much you believed in you, know. it man I, it does look very very similar, but if you watch it on fast forward like I have you watch it ten times fast, the color palette does start getting <laughs> a lot warmer, but I mean no one else is going to give a shit about that apart from me <laughs>
1: I mean normally in a film where the camera doesn't move a lot the visuals can get really boring mm. but yeah, that just doesn't happen at all
2: no I know? think this cuz the characters aren't boring and I think the yeah. compositions are beautiful because they're all mid shots and they've got movement and they've got a real energy to the characters and mm. form and noise so you start moving a camera with that kind of energy yeah you just you're going to get lost
3: yeah so we've been talking about him Haskell Wexler he was the first T P. Probably more famous before this for the likes of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, Thomas Crown Affair "In The Heat of the Night, incredible looking films. And wow. he had 31 days on this before he was fired. And was said he believes it was because he was working on a documentary called Underground about the weather underground. But Foreman has come out with the classic line. It was artistic differences.
1: Yeah, the weather underground were like a far left militant group. And mm. the artistic differences between Foreman and Wexler were apparently overlighting, and how best to shoot a film inside a hospital, like a building, yes. not designed for yeah. filmmaking. And yeah. Wexler later said, I know a lot more about shooting than Milos does. Wow, then. <laughs> All right, man.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
3: Well, Michael Douglas has said that and Rex was the hardest thing he's ever had to do, but ultimately it was either him or Foreman who had to go. So then Bill Butler came in, and he did 30 days before he left for another commitment, and then William A. Fraker came in to do the fishing sequence, which we've talked about.
2: Ah, wasn't Butler. Yeah, uncredited at
3: the end, yeah. I think. Yeah,
2: right. It was Butler. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but Bill Butler came into this on the back of shooting The Conversation and Jaws. Yeah. yeah. That is one hell of a one, two, three. And to then, right, yeah. after this, Greece and the Rocky sequels are as good as it gets for Bill Butler. Mm, By the 90s, yeah. he was doing Beethoven's second, the Anaconda.
0: I mean, yeah, what happened wow.
2: there? Easy life. Who did he piss off?
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> Wexler, probably. <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on. Didn't he replace Wexler on The Conversation as well? Did he? Yeah. And Wexler got kicked off The Conversation and Butler ah, right. replaced him on that as well.
1: <laughs> right. Well, no wonder he's pissed going off. on between those yeah. two. Yeah, yeah. Thumb something going on there. Yeah. yeah. Well, Haskell Wexler and Bill Butler were Oscar-nominated for One Flew Over the Cookies Nest. Do you know who they lost out to? Whoever did Barry Lyndon? It was Barry Lyndon, and the DP was John Alcott. John
2: Alcott, yeah. Ah, okay, yeah. Some
1: big winners of the Oscars that year. Big year, big -hmm. big, year, wasn't it? So some massive talents behind the cameras, as well as in front of them, on One Flew Over the Cookies Nest. And I think it's plain to see that Lawrence Hauben, Bo Goldman, Jack Nietzsche, Haskell Wexler, and Bill Butler Mm -hmm. all left their marks on a classic.
3: Definitely did. Left the marks on each other as well.
1: (laughs) Black eyes. The end. The final act is often where things come crashing down and with character conflict coming left and right, that is certainly true of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Yes, it is. We're going to be going all in on the climax of the film where the narrative baton passes from the Mac to the Chief. But first, it's party time. Yes! (laughs) yes <laughs> thank fuck You will Tide in Oregon and the inmates are celebrating after Ratchet and the orderlies leave one night Murphy brings in a load of booze and spends Christmas with the cranks <laughs> in these scenes we see Candy and Rose Billy becoming a stud and then tragedy as he takes his own life mm. booze, music, sex, fights and death standard Christmas party for you isn't it Matt?
3: <laughs> <laughs> invites in the post John. <laughs> Just let me know. <laughs> also, going to say Christmas for the Cranks—that's probably our finest pun yet. <laughs> well, that's a deep cut. That people will get that it one. Is, I'm still, stu- I'm speechless. Yeah, <laughs> brilliant. Yeah, this party—it's the funniest sequence in the film for me. But then, obviously, turns into a tragedy. But who makes it for me? Scatman Crothers is terrible. Yeah. Yeah. what does he think he's doing here like twenty dollars <laughs> and a few bowls of booze is all it takes for yeah. him to let all hell break loose like <laughs> on the whole ward as well and the whole, how did he get this job in the first place like so easily distracted when he's just waving at candy not yeah. even listening to what McMurphy's saying and then yeah when candy and a friend are in the washroom and he's sitting there, sure you can take a bath very yeah. <laughs> interesting, very interesting. It's like, has this guy never interacted with a woman before? It's yeah. like the first time he's ever <laughs> met one. And like, what does he think is going to happen when he's in there with Candy's friend? What does he think is going to happen in the rest of the ward? And the most hilarious bit, though is when he tries to hide with him instead yeah. of talking to the supervisor. And yeah. Someone asks where he is and someone else says, oh, he's jerking off somewhere else and he just pipes up. Ain't no one jerking off anywhere, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> and then that same person asks him what he's doing there. Doing the same fucking thing you're doing, hiding. Like, he's <laughs> just an absolute clown of an employee. The worst liar. He's wonderful. Oh, it's a wonderful buffon, but it's yeah. the worst liar I've ever seen in a film. Ain't nobody in there, when there's all kinds <laughs> of like, banging and running yeah, going yeah. on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it Just this whole thing that has that vibe of when you're a kid and the teacher's out of the room for 10 minutes so everyone starts running riot until you hear the teacher coming back and you try to get everything back under your desk and wipe the crap off the blackboard, whatever you've been doing. Um, it's really, really funny. But I would say it's one of these months where I think it's so selfish by McMurphy. Like, even if he escapes, the others are still going to cop for it. You know, no cigarettes for anyone after this. So, yeah, yeah, it's a really selfish decision by him. And I think everything that happens after this scene comes down to what he's done here. But it's really funny all the same.
1: Yeah. I mean, when Ratchet leaves the hospital before the party starts, it's like Mm. late at night. And then she's back in the ward first thing in the morning. I mean, see what you like about her but you put the shift in
3: that's what I
2: mean what's you going home doing nothing <laughs> Yeah. sleeping in the car
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly for three hours and back yeah. and then Scatman Crothers just turns up from nowhere <laughs> just <laughs> yeah. in there yeah he's called Turgle but he's surely just Dick Halloran, who he plays in the Shining <laughs> no, yeah of course it is. exactly the same guy so I just rang same. up Michael yeah.
2: Douglas They're going to be in yeah just turn up tomorrow <laughs>
1: yeah yeah it's funny when Candy and Rose arrive, Max at the window waving them in and we see Turkle behind the soundproof glass just like <laughs> mouthing, son
3: of a bitch. It's <laughs> yeah. amazing.
1: But every time I'm like, just leave, for God's sake. Yeah. Matt Murphy and the chief, get yeah. out of there. The window is wide open. It's yeah. there, this is your chance. Yeah. But they don't. No. And again, I would say the party sequence, it drags a touch for me, to be honest. Okay. It goes on a little bit too long, seeing as not a huge amount happens, mm. narratively. But... It's made up for by being really funny, especially when Turkle's in there. (laughs) Ain't nobody jerking off. No (laughs) way, (laughs) motherfucker.
3: Really angry. Just get out there and talk to
0: your supervisor. Oh, my God.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm going to go for the aftermath of the party for as fun as that is. And I know it drags on a little bit, but it does set it up for this. And when Ratchet comes back in, oh, that fear.
0: Yeah. Oh, it's yeah.
2: just palpable, isn't it, when mm. she's walking back in and it is just terrifying. And everybody knows, oh, shit, we're fucked up here. Mm. McMurphy's waking up and he's like, oh, shit, I should have left a long time ago. You know, and it's all just starting to ramp up. But it's a her treatment here, like I mentioned before, in Brad Dura's performance and her treatment of, of Billy is absolutely abhorrent. This emotional manipulation just to regain control of the situation yeah. is disgusting. And he comes out. And the way he runs down the corridor, and he's just he's butt naked, and he's just getting his pants yeah. on, and he's he's smiling at everybody. It's that it's that two like well, it's that close It was not necessarily a two shot. He turns one way and he's looking at the group and he's smiling, and he turns back towards Nurse Ratchet mm. and he's not. And it's just mm. that that tragedy and and comedy between that performance, and I think that's just so wonderful. But it's when she just says, "Are oh, you ashamed?" and he says, mm. "He's not." And yeah. you think that's it? He's cured, great. Yeah. And then she brings him right back down. What worries mm-hmm. me is how your mother's going to take this. Mm, and he's yeah. like, "Oh fuck, don't tell." Me. But we, well, you know, we're very good friends. Well, I'm yeah. going to have to let her know what's going on here, you know. And he's just then he's broken, and she knows he's, that he's broken him. And there's that moment, and you just think. McMurphy again the windows open it's there you can go yeah, the girls are there it. go yeah. go go now and he just leaves the keys on there but then it's his morals it's not his ego this is his morals she's wrong i cannot leave these people with this person i've got to yeah. take her out of the equation because she is evil she is now the personification of evil and she's treating these people disgustingly and i've got to take her out of the equation and is it just me or does Nurse Ratchet go all Schwarzenegger on Mars in Total Recall when she's getting strangled? <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, the bulging eyes. <laughs> yeah, just watch
2: it again. It's like, whoa. But yeah, that's, that gets him But it's just that explosion from a Murphy. You know for a fact he's going to get punished for this. And just that, it's just how close it was. It's there. The window's mm. there. It's open. You can smell fresh air. Get out of there. Yeah. And he doesn't. Tragedy, but amazing. Amazing sequence. Yeah.
1: Yeah, another narrative moment where the brightness of the party is quickly destroyed by the darkness that follows. But what this scene highlights to me most is that, and following off from what I said earlier, answering George's question, if there was any doubt whether or not Ratchet's a villain, it's put to bed here for me. Yeah. Because mm. you've talked about it, Westy, but of all the bad things Ratchet does, the worst for me is how she treats Billy all yeah. the way through. I mean, before this, right in the first act of the film, there's that group session where Ratchet reveals, in front of everybody, that Billy tried to commit suicide. Yeah, that is outrageous from a psychiatric yeah. nurse. Mm. And then, here after the party, Billy's been doing the wild thing all night, presumably, with Candy. <laughs> and then, when he comes back out, he is talking articulately, and his stutter's all but gone. It's much improved, yeah. anyway. Yeah, yeah. And Roger, like you say, just destroys him, intentionally mm. sets him back by mentioning his mother. But also, and this is some excellent writing, that line about Billy's mother suddenly creates this whole backstory for Billy, for me. Mm. Yeah. It's all about his mother, she's the reason he has the stutter. Yeah. Yeah. He says he's voluntarily in the hospital, but he's not. His mother has made him volunteer.
2: Yeah, she's put mm-hmm. him there.
1: Yeah. yeah. And when McMurphy said there was nothing wrong with Billy, he was right. You shouldn't mm-hmm. be there. You yeah. should be, mm-hmm. bird-dogging chicks. Yeah. And worst of all, Ratchet says she knows Billy's mother, so she knows all of this, and she's yeah. knowingly complicit in basically destroying Billy's life. Mm-hmm. And then, I'm still going on about it, <laughs> <And> then, <laughs> when they find Billy's body, Ratchet says to the patient's, The best thing we can do is go about our day. He's dead. Yeah,
2: yeah. yeah, (laughs) Only does
1: she not give a shit about Billy, but just talking to people who are his friends, and she Mm. basically says he doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that he's dead. She views them all as like less than human. And as for turkle we don't find out what happens. (laughs) No, but presumably he got fired,
3: and that guy can have no complaints. (laughs) No, (laughs) (laughs) he can't.
2: What a way to get fired, though. (laughs) Yeah.
3: I don't think she does anything wrong here, personally. Uh, <laughs> no, it, it's, oh, it's devastating this moment because Billy, just such a sweetheart, just such an innocent soul. And it's a scene for me that it, it plays differently the more I watch it. And I would say, just to come at it from a slightly different angle, I, I would say McMurphy does have blood in his hands here as well, though, because yeah, everything yeah. he's done has been all fun and games until you see the effect it's had here. And did he ever take a minute to really think about where Billy was emotionally? Is he going to be able to cope with hooking up with the prostitute on the ward? He doesn't think about the consequences. And, you know, one thing that should be pointed out is Ratchet at one point says to Washington, stay with him until the doctor arrives. So whatever Washington does, for whatever reason, he, he ignores that and leaves Billy by himself. So I think Washington is, is complicit. He as well, a little bit for me of why Billy ends up dead. But the one bit that gets me, and it, it's a bit where I'd agree with you, John, Ratchet gives that little smirk at Mac as Billy's led away to say, like, yeah, see what won. you've done? Yeah. I've got you yeah. now. Yeah. 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 Well, time for another
1: Patreon question now. It comes mm. from Jacob Perry, and it has nothing to do with this scene, but it does involve Matt Murphy. Okay. So Jacob asks Battle of the Max. Mac Murphy versus McCready. Who wins? Jacob has some stipulations. One on okay. one, bare knuckle, no flamethrowers.
0: <laughs> and
1: we should clarify that McCready is R.J. McCready, the lead character played by Kurt Russell in The Thing.
3: Yeah. Right. So, Matt, mm. RP or R.J.? I'm going to go for R.J., and I have two reasons. Of course you are. Of course I am, obviously. <laughs> what else was I going to say? Exactly. First reason, throughout The Thing, he's pretty much drunk, so he's going to be drunk and punches hurt a lot less when You're drunk than they do when you're the sweet. So be able to take a lot more. That's the voice from of the experience, thing. there, Matt. You know, sudden I tried for fighting around yeah. you know what it's like. It's the only
2: time he gets punched when he's mortal. <laughs>
3: exactly. The second one, obviously, the end of the thing, he could be the thing. So he could, you yeah. know, just sprout a tentacle and rip off McMurphy's head. Yeah. I mean, we only see Matt Murphy have one fight in
1: the film against mm. Washington and he gets his ass handed to him. So yeah. it has to be McCready, who at least does survive a battle or two with the thing. And also, it's over Matt Murphy. Kurt Russell would knock that line out of the park. Yes, he would. So, <laughs> yes, he would yeah. Unless Matt Murphy's played by Hackman. In which case, McCready, Childs, Windows, off. throw them all in, and there's no contest. Yeah.
2: <laughs> it depends if the chief's in the wings. <laughs> <laughs> uh, really, doesn't it? man. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's right-hand <laughs> man, isn't it? Because I mean, he'd just pick him up and throw him away. Yeah, it's McCready for me, definitely. He's just, he's just a badass, isn't he? He just mm. kicked the shit out of him. He'd yeah, be too. Definitely. He'd be just, you know, throw a couple of women in there, and <laughs> McMurphy would be running around like a headless chicken. McCready just knock him straight out one punch, no problem. But yeah, McCready, yeah. easy. So
1: yeah, I missed that one three to nil.
3: Definitely. Yeah, not often that happens.
1: A roller coaster of a sequence there then, sad to see Billy go, and yeah. unfortunately for RP, there's going to be consequences for him too. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> the day after the night before, and the party atmosphere is over, as Mac is separated from the group. Mm. Speculation and rumour about his fate is rife until we find out the truth, Mac's been lobotomised, and the Chief isn't very happy about it.
3: Nope.
1: John Dunphy might be full of shit, but I know he isn't. Matt, what do you think of the climax?
3: (laughs) Ah, the climax, it's just devastating in so many ways. And I think the build-up to the revelation that Max had the lobotomy is just as important because it looks like everything's just back to normal. Ratchet's back on the ward, big neck brace, obviously but still has control over everyone. I like when Seafelt comes back, he's had his teeth fixed and she's like, you feel better, don't you? So just everything's back to normal for her, yeah. but you can feel a max influence and you can see it. You know, Harden is dealing out the cards and he's got all the patter that McMurphy had when he yeah, was dealing yeah. out the cards, you know, he's one for tapes. It's, it's really subliminal, yeah. but it's in there. Martini clearly learned shit about how to play cards. Obviously, still, still <laughs> doesn't know Hit what me. he's doing, but that's funny. Hit me! Hit me. <laughs> Hit me. And, McMurphy himself it's like he's become an urban legend now like when Seafell comes back that story about he took two gods out and escaped it's like he's just been elevated as something bigger than he was bigger than a man almost and that's what makes his ending all the more shocking like it's incredible to me that they would do this to anyone in the 20th century yeah I know just it's astonishing and it's such a complicated moment to land because yeah Mac wouldn't want this existence and he'd want release from it but It's still murder. Chief is still killing him. And yeah, underneath the charm and the humour, he is a reprehensible individual, but doesn't he still have a right to exist as a human being, not a vegetable? You know, Mm -hmm. who has the right to take that away from him? So it's a really complicated ethical, moral question that the lobotomy throws up here. You know, is the lobotomy worse than a murder? And it doesn't have an easy answer. And that's really incredible to me. And while it's asking you that question, it lands the big emotional beat of the chief saying goodbye to him. You're coming with me. And then just when you think, was he going to get him out of there? Then you just that pillow coming across over the face. It's an ending to a morally murky character that really lingers afterwards. And it's a moment that I think it just really makes you reevaluate your stance on issues like this. You know, I don't know how I should feel at this. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the point.
2: I think the whole thing it's trying to say is, you know, what is life and what yeah. is it, and who are you? Yeah, you know, just because you're alive, if you haven't got your 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 own personality, if you haven't got yeah. your own sense of adventure, your own sense of self, you're dead anyway.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's a great setup earlier where Matt Murphy pretends to have been lobotomized. Yeah. So when we see him this yeah. time, we hope he's yeah. doing the same again. Yeah, he's, yeah. He's makes a moment the moment that chief lifts his head and we see the scars. Oh the more God. Shocking. Yeah. And the same as you, Matt, what's even more shocking to me is that lobotomies were still being performed in yeah. 1963. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, The last one apparently took place in 1967, so it is wow. factual. Christ. And beggars belief they were still being done in the yeah. 60s.
2: Again, it just goes to show how little they understood the conditions. Mm. Well,
1: exactly, yeah. Yeah. And what this whole event means as well is that this is one of the rare films where the antagonist defeats the protagonist. Mm-hmm. In this case, yeah. Ratchet firstly ruins Matt Murphy's kind of protege in Billy and yeah. then has Matt Murphy lobotomized and they yeah. both end up dead. So, I mean, it's a huge moment. We're mm. only five minutes from the end and we're on Shit. the biggest downer in the film, yeah. which takes some guts from a filmmaking point of view. Yeah.
3: Absolutely. And yeah, because it is such a downer, as you've said, John, when Douglas and Sands first came on board, they were shopping the background Studios to get the funding. They went to 20th Century Fox and they said, we'll make the film, but you have to change the ending so McMurphy lives instead. But they said no and struck the deal with UA instead. Yeah,
1: for the best, surely. Yeah. Yeah. And what did they want? Chief slings him over his shoulder, lobotomized, and takes him <laughs> yes. out with him. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> And Vincent Schiavelli, who plays Fredrickson, mm-hmm. he said filming this scene was really powerful as well. He mm-hmm. was in the scene, like in his bed, and he actually fell asleep. But the moment knowing what was going on, was giving him nightmares. And he was woken up by a foreman, poking him in the ribs, going, stop moving, you're ruining everything.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll go kind of find the joy in the end. Well, the chief, Mm. you know, finds the strength to, you know, he's big as a mountain now. He knows Mm -hmm. he is. And like Matt touched on there, I think that sequence with him and McMurphy is always, always going to be heartbreaking for me. Mm -hmm. You're coming with me. I'm not leaving you this way. Yeah. You Know it's just went that he's just nothing left him at Murphy with his heads just lolling about, yeah. And I find it really powerful the way he reacts to that pillow being put on him because you would expect mm. him just to be dormant and not move mm. and just accept it, but yeah. there's still life there. And I find uh-huh. that instinct, yeah, it, it is, it is that instinct, or is that you know, is he putting it on? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is he, is he, is he? gone too far with that it just did it really work did it go to that level was he still there is he fighting it does the chief know and there's all them questions as well left with it because he does fight back with some strength mm. and i find that a really inf- interesting choice because for me if i was directing this i would have it just that pillow over and it would just be <gasps> the odd movement but i would need the audience to know that he was dormant and done and finished mm. but the, the foreman doesn't do that he shows this there's still a vibrancy there and again that that questions it for me I think the big question mark on this ending is, would the Chief be able to do what he'd done without that drive of McMurphy dying, without him doing what he's done to Mac? Could he lift that fountain up? could he find that could he find that power without that drive that he get? he needs to do it now yeah, he has yeah. to get it. if mcmurphy was next to him Hooper and the hollering go on chief lift yeah. it up would he be able to do it to the same <laughs> mm-hmm. degree would he be able to and i don't honestly don't think he would be and i think it's the pain of losing him the mm. pain of of accepting and being able to move on that gives him the strength to do that and it's that absolute genius move from a filmmaking point of view to smash that window in silence It's joyous.
1: Yeah. I said at the top that when I was like early to mid-teens was when I started getting into watching classic films. And there were a lot of times when I'd watch a film and have a moment of recognition. Like, ah, so this is where you talking to me comes from. Yeah. And here, I remember the chief moving towards the sink and being like, he's going to throw it through the window because I'd seen it before.
2: Yeah, on The Simpsons.
1: <laughs> on The Simpsons. i have seen all The Simpsons. Yeah. The Simpsons.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. And it is brilliant. Again, set up perfectly in the earlier scene where Matt Murphy tries and fails to pick the sink up. Yeah. It's a bizarre way to escape, but mm. because of it tying back to the earlier failure, because of it tying back to Matt Murphy, who's just yeah. been killed, it just feels massive. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like the final lesson from Matt Murphy to the Chief. Mm. The narrative lead changes too. It's not Matt Mm. Murphy's story anymore. It's the Chiefs. It's the Chiefs, yeah. And I've been talking about how moments of light in the film are almost always immediately undercut by moments Mm. of darkness. And I think this is the first time that the opposite happens. We hit rock bottom when we see what's happened to Matt Murphy, but then get the instant euphoria of the Chief's escape. Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, this is how every film should finish. I mean, character running away into the
3: night. Glorious.
2: (laughs)
1: Yeah,
3: amazing.
2: With that soundtrack. (laughs)
3: <laughs> yeah, it's one of the moments where the soundtrack is so perfect, the way that music crescendos mm. right when the sink hits the window. Yeah. It's time to perfection. And it's magnificent. And yeah, it's the emotional uplift we need. But as Wesley says, there's always a bit of melancholy to it. There's a bit of sadness, you know realistically, how far is the chief going to get? You know, you, you've mm. got hope that he's going to make it somewhere. Oh, fuck, don't say that, man. <laughs> I know, I know. It, it's one of these you where... You just see
2: him disappear over the brow and then just a the ambulance goes after him.
3: And yeah. then it finishes. <laughs>
1: just hear a big crash of the yeah. screen. <laughs> Silence. Sirens <laughs> <So you're, laughs> everywhere. See, so have gunshot, got him. So, yeah, it, it, end
2: of night, of the living dead. Yeah, yeah.
3: But, but yeah, it is. It, it's a beautiful end of the film. It, it's so good.
1: It's so fulfilling and we're at the end devastating consequences for Billy and Matt Murphy as Roger takes her final revenge but we end on a ray of light with the escape of the chief well not if you listen to Matt well a little bit
0: (laughs) reception and awards
1: one Flew Over the Cookie was nested very well for itself on release. On a budget of approximately $4 million, it took a huge return of $163 million, Wow. Which was massive. Yeah. It did so well at the box office that it was shown in cinemas in Sweden non-stop from its release in 1975 until 1987.
2: Yeah. What? And that's oh. only because that theatre closed, isn't it? That's the only reason.
1: Is that why it stopped? Yeah. Right. Yes. we should suddenly go now <laughs> yeah. then. Yeah, it would be, yeah. <laughs> the last thing we really loved it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And as for the critics, let's start with Roger Eno. Roger Ebert, what did mm-hmm. he think?
3: Oh, he loved it, didn't he? Come yeah, on, he was a fan, true. Was... Full marks.
2: Of
1: course, it was yeah. the full whack from Roger, four yeah. stars out of four. And he said One Flew Over the Cookie's Nest is a film so good that there's a temptation to forgive it when it goes wrong. But it does go wrong, insisting on making larger points than its story should really carry. And yet, there are those moments of brilliance. So. Mixed bag from Rog, four stars.
2: Not too sure what he means there. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's really ambitious, but it shouldn't be, but it's good. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Pauline Kale said, The book was a lyric jag, and it became a non-conformist Bible. Milos Forman must have understood how crude the poetic, paranoid vision of the book would look on the screen, and he did an intelligent job of listening Kesey's schematism. Oh, Kesey-peasy. I mean, she didn't say that, but... <laughs> <laughs> And in a retrospective review, Empire Magazine gave the film five stars out of five and said, the most radical film to emerge from mainstream Hollywood. Too many classic set pieces to mention, but keep your ears cocked for that immortal line. Mm, juicy fruit.
3: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: Certified brilliance. Mm-hmm. On Rotten Tomatoes, One Flew Over the Cookie's Nest has a critics approval rating of 93%, which is huge, and even bigger from audiences with 96%. And yep. on IMDb, a very impressive 8.7 out of 10, putting it 19th in the IMDb top 250 list. Yep, nice. And it's one place above seven and one below Goodfellas. Oof, so there's your next Sunday sorted, Westy.
2: Yep, that's exactly where I
1: am. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: at the Oscars, Cookie was Nest won five, which were best picture, best director for Foreman, Best Actor for Nicholson, Best Actress for Louise Fletcher, and Best Adapted Screenplay for Lawrence Hown and Bo Goldman.
3: Mm-hmm. In
1: doing so, it became the second of only three movies ever to win the big five awards at the yeah. Oscars. Yep. Yeah. You know what's coming. Mm-hmm. Can you need that too?
2: It happened one, one night. Yeah. Uh of the Lambs. Silence of the Lambs, yeah.
1: Correct, the Silence of the Lambs in 1992, and it happened one night in 1935. That was directed by Frank
2: Capra. Capra, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: And after the 1976 Oscars, Frank Capra sent Milos Forman the telegram that said, Welcome to the club. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> nice what a did Foreman
2: say? Fuck off. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Forman said, what club? What club? What are you talking yeah. about? <laughs> <What club>?
2: <laughs> <laughs> Went back to the hotel room, talking to my friend.
3: <laughs> did Forman send anything similar to Jonathan Demi? After science, <laughs> probably not. I wouldn't have thought. <laughs> no, he didn't know. No. <laughs> <laughs> He'd never seen it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In the year before Cuckoos Nest came out, Nicholson had won Best Actor with the BAFTAs, uh, but for Chinatown, and he couldn't accept the award in person because he was filming one flew over. So he pre recorded a jokey acceptance speech instead with all the cast from the hospital. Yeah, it's fantastic. It's really good. It's really, it's really, really good. It is brilliant.
1: Funny. Also, it's David Niven who presents the award, so two reasons to watch it. Oh, yeah, yeah. brilliant! Constantin singers. Yeah. Constant yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, "One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest" was a critical smash on its release, a big box office hit, dominated at the Oscars. Did about as well as you could expect, I think. Yeah. Definitely. Absolutely.
2: Sequels and influence.
1: There weren't any sequels to "One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest." Would you have liked to have seen one? With the Chief, yeah, for sure. Yeah, the Chief santick Chief on the run.
2: <laughs> like first blood. <laughs>
3: <laughs> but where have we seen one flew over the cookie with nested influence, Matt? Mm. I think it, it probably goes back to what I said about Nicholson and his 70s run being incredible. So I think the influence of this was just establishing him as one of the best of his generation and really helped cement like his legend as an actor. And then... Other than that, it's probably the depiction of institutes like this, which are probably a bit more common in film now. Films like Girl Interrupted from the early 2000s, Angelina Jolie. Yeah. But I think probably its influence is in culture in general was as a real eye opener. It probably made people go, hang on, what this goes on, like forced lobotomies, electrocuting people to make them better in inverted commas this is what mental health problems can look like. They're not just ranting and raving and psychos. So, yeah, that's its influence for me, I think. One of those films where the influence on cinema probably isn't that big. I think it it's, has an influence on the world outside of cinema, which is probably bigger.
1: Yeah, I mean, as well as Nicholson and the movies, what's also interesting is the film's impact on its subject matter, mm. like psychiatry. Yeah, The book was published, like we said, in 1962. That was at the height of the anti-psychiatry movement in America, which peddled the outdated idea that mental illness doesn't exist, or at best that it's caused by societal or environmental conditions. It's not health-related. These ideas were then backed up, unintentionally probably, but definitely backed up by One Flew Over the Cookie's Nest, Mm. a film where the healthcare industry is obviously presented very badly. Lobotomies, beating up patients, the main character fakes mental illness, the ratch is in there. There was a study done in 1983 that tested the effects of watching One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest on a test group, and it found that the film had an overwhelmingly negative impact on their views of mental illness. Mm. Well, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I actually think the film might have aged well in that regard, and that the patients are presented favourably and in a more likeable way through Mm -hmm. today's lens. Yeah. Though people who know a lot more about the subject than me may disagree, I'd be interested to see what the results of a study like that were now, though, on young people. Yeah. Either way, the film definitely had a major impact. There was a doctor as well, a well known psychiatrist called Frank Pittman, and he said the book in the film had an enormous impact on his field. So it was and is, I think, significant outside Hollywood as well as inside.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm just going to be in complete agreement with you guys. There's nothing that you've said that I can't really say again. I mean, it's very, very impactful on society and an eye-opener because the way it was shot, how it was shot, why mm. it was shot, um, choosing to shoot it in an actual location. You know, that didn't. there's not, There's nothing Hollywood about this. Milos Foreman keeping yeah. it European. I think that's foreign automatically to people. And I think it's a foreign subject shot in a foreign way and on an American audience, especially, or even on a Western audience to be going, wow, what is this? Mm -hmm. And all of these things go hand in hand to deliver the message and to hit it home. And is that, you know, it is timeless and it does work. This kind of gave them permission to do that.
1: Yeah, for sure. No sequel for Cookie Was Nest Then. Nor should there be, but with its huge influence in and outside the industry, the star turn from Nicholson and its status as the definitive Mental Asylum film. Mm. Its legacy is always going to be there, I think. Definitely. Yeah. yeah, it's huge.
2: All the right movies ranking.
1: We're at the end then. flown in the nest. So now it's time for the big reveal, our rankings for the film. Westy, you put this one up. So do you want yeah. to kick it off? Your summary and score for one flew over the cuckoo's nest, please.
0: Me? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I can't believe it took you two hours to get that in there. Made
2: uh, it for the end.
1: <laughs> the so, piece you gonna- pulled was perfect as well. I'm- I know
2: that was. Perfect, Cheswick.
1: Have you seen so yourself? Yeah. <laughs> Big Chris. Yeah. That was perfect.
2: <laughs> Not a compliment either. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yes, I mean, Cuckoo's Nest did, did as well as we could expect it to do, as well as it expected it to do, and it exceeded expectations. And for me, it's still important. It's got such incredible themes that have been so bravely explored. It really does make you sit and think, what does it mean to be human? It kind of makes you want to be a better person. It makes you want to to reassess things and you put things in perspective and you rearrange your order of importance in what it is to be alive and what it is to be happy and what it truly, truly means to wake up every day. And it makes it really, really important. Themes that are unfortunately... Timeless and unfortunately still incredibly relevant and it still really, really works for me now. I'll recommend this film to anybody at any time. It's a masterpiece and it's a definite 10. Ooh.
1: Huge score and it is a huge film. Yeah. I mean, widely regarded as one of the greatest to come out of Hollywood and for good reason. Tackles a big and tough subject matter and mental illness and does so with a message, with thematic depth. It features for me the greatest performance of a movie icon in Jack mm-hmm. Nicholson. Yeah. Yep. Ratchet Great. stands up today as a brilliant villain. Mm-hmm. And I would also recommend it as essential viewing for anyone. Yeah. There yeah. are a couple of moments where it sags a bit for me, most mm-hmm. notably the fishing boat sequence. Yeah. And it does bother me the negative impact it had on the reputation of mental illness in the mm-hmm. 70s and 80s.
0: Yeah.
1: But I mean, the filmmaking is superb top to bottom. Milos Forman's first of two all-time classics. And for me, not quite full marks, but it's a nine out of 10. Wow. Okay. Okay.
3: And Matt, your summary and score for One Flew Over the Cookie was nest? Yep. It's always been massive for me. This one, like I said, I just felt it was a real eye opener back when I was 18, 19. Uh, When I first watched it, it, I don't watch it frequently, but that's only because it's one of those films you have to be sparing with it, I think.
2: You can't, I've got your (laughs) B-A-T-R-S. Well, yeah, that's it. Still waiting,
3: 20 years on. Whenever I do watch it, I wanted to have the same impact that it did on first viewing. And it is obviously a tough watch at times, but when I do re-watch it, I just find there's more and more to get into. And as I've mentioned, it's a film where I've changed the stance that I have on characters and themes. So coming back to it... To find it it can do that, to have that depth, to have that moral complexity is no small achievement. Yeah. I think like you, John, I could live without the fish and trip sequence, but Nicholson and Fletcher are just monumentally good in this. I'll always come yeah. back to this. It's always been a favourite. It'll always be a ten.
2: Beautiful.
1: Well, now it's time for the real crazies. Or Twitter <laughs> or X followers. <laughs> Some of their comments on one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Laura Ledford at Millie Hag said Jack is great, and I don't always think that. Mm. This role was made for him. I can't imagine anyone else doing it justice. Such a well-crafted film. Fletcher is brilliant. You cheer through tears. The chief for taking care of Jack at the end. Mm. Taking care of it delicately put by Laura yes. there. Yes,
2: yeah, very delicately. Yeah. I
1: agree. Nicholson's best for me. Yeah,
2: yeah oh, definitely. I'd agree. Mark Jones
1: at Dom Underscore Mark said, As a 15-year-old, I invited my girlfriend to this unknown movie with the sole intention of satisfying my hormone demands. (laughs) (laughs) What a choice. Everything went to plan. Back row, arm around the shoulder. Minutes into the film, I'd forgotten I was with someone. The randy little devil. (laughs) I mean... To be fair, electroshock therapy is a definite passion killer. Yeah. It is a
2: bit, yeah. I wonder what his mother thinks of him. his <laughs> <Yeah>. behaviour.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and Ant Brown at brownest underscore and said, the book, 10. The film, 3. Wow. Ooh. Staggering miscasting completely missed the point of the way the characters come across in the book. Right. Okay. Right. And we had a few comments from fans of the book bemoaning what the film had missed out or done badly. Right. Okay. So, okay. Fair enough, I think. So I think very much an adaptation removed from the book, it seems. Mm. Okay, right. And altogether, our followers rated the film as, what do you think, out of 10?
2: 10. I'm sticking to me guns here, 10.
1: Ah, uh, I'll go 9. Well, it's in the middle, 9.5 out of 10. Ah. Wow, so close. So that gives One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest 38.5 out of 40 in total. Mm. Yeah. Not a surprise. This is a big scorer. No, no. Not very big. And that's it. The meeting is adjourned. Our 68 days is up. It is. (laughs) Hopefully you like the episode and don't feel like you've been lobotomized. But next time out, staying alive is as good as it gets. Mm. And it's not the Bee Gees. It's Matt, Luke and Westy. The next best thing. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. They're getting into Danny Boyle's take
3: on the zombie film with 28 Days Later.
2: Mm. Yeah yeah some harmonies on that
0: fucker yeah.
3: john there's no way anyone could have guessed 28 days later from your lead up there yeah what do they doing next
0: not 28 days later. you could
2: have you could have easily just put like and they're trying to stay alive talking about 28 days later
1: well to find out more about becoming a patron, supporting what we do and accessing our archive and bonus episodes please visit patreon.com forward slash all the right movies You can subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes and Apple Podcasts. Just the five-star reviews, though.
2: If you don't mind.
1: Keep your four stars to yourself.
2: Yes, please.
1: (laughs) Socially, you can keep up with All The Right Movies on Twitter, or X, where we are, at ATRightMovies. We post threads on there that tell the stories behind classic films, and everything we post has been said by somebody involved in the production, or comes from three corroborated sources, same Mm -hmm. as on the podcast, so check that out. You can find us on YouTube, at youtube.com forward slash All The Right Movies, on Instagram and Threads, we are at all the underscore right movies. You can join our movie group on Facebook as well to get involved with some great movie discussions and our website, full of great features, is all the right movies.com. Like mm-hmm.
2: to get your teeth into there. Mm-hmm.
1: We're all off now to watch the World Series and get some juicy
2: fruit. <laughs> Absolutely. Sounds great.
1: Well, me and Westy are Mats off our bird dog and chicks and banging beaver, as <laughs> usual. <laughs> please do come back next time though for 28 days later we're talking about farm we're talking about content we're talking about
0: (laughs) information jump up there stick it in the basket chief
1: We'll come back next time though for 28 days later we're talking yes. about form we're talking about content we're talking about inter- jump up there else.
2: stick it in the basket Chief!
0: <laughs> i want my cigarettes i want my cigarettes. i want my cigarettes. i don't want to cigarette. i want my cigarette you're all right westy <laughs> <laughs> go get the medication <laughs>